You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 464. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. With your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 4G at the Weston Hotel in Birmingham, Alabama. Today's show is recorded on the 18th of March, 2021. Today's episode, a Donghai Airlines pilot and flight attendant get into an actual physical fight in the middle of their flight. Canadian safety inspectors blame the pilot for the fatal crash of a Cessna 208 caravan. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, the coupon kid. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 464 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger, an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Winds in New York City. All right. Uh, Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia, and... Joining me today from her lakeside studio in South... Kagalucky! She is a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. It is so great to see everyone here today. This is going to be a great show. Really looking forward to it. Can't wait to get started. Awesome. And also joining us... From his mobile studio in California, <laughs> a world traveler, airplane mechanic, bright lean, cognoscenti, fitness hound, and international air freight captain, it's Miami Rick. Hello, everybody. It's been a little while. Happy to be back. It's going to be another great one. Uh, looking forward to it. And here we go, our intrepid host from across the pond in the pastoral English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airlines. It's Captain Nick. <laughs> you seem to be having a few problems. I am there, having Jeff. an issue. Uh, you certainly are. Great to be on the show, particularly since you've moved an hour closer to me this week. Well done, yeah, not only that, but we're also recording earlier than we normally do. So, yeah, we try. We do Thank our you. best. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you, America. <laughs> You're welcome. Oh, now he's thanking us. Yeah. After he called us a silly country earlier yeah, he did. before the show. Well, you are a bit silly. He's yeah, being very be fair, rude. Yes, but I do appreciate you. All right. Well, <laughs> we, we do too next year. We do too. <laughs> hey, let's do some news.
stand by for news. From the Aviation Herald, a Donghai Airlines Boeing 737-800 registration Bravo 5311 performing flight 6297 from Nantong to Xi'an, China? Xi'an? Xi'an? Xi'an, yeah. Okay. Was Xian. <laughs> X-I-A-N. Yeah. Was en route at 7,800 meters, flight level 256. About 70 minutes into the 120-minute flight, when the captain decided to take a toilet break in the forward first-class toilet and instructed a passenger waiting before the toilet to return to his seat. The captain entered the toilet when he later left. The passenger was still waiting for the toilet. The captain thus talked to the flight attendant, stating uh, that the flight attendant hadn't done his job and he should have returned the passenger to his seat. A physical altercation developed, which, according to Chinese media reports, resulted in the flight attendant's fracture of an arm and the captain's loss of a tooth. The captain Ooh, returned wow. to the cockpit. The flight landed without further incident in Xi'an. <laughs> um, on March 8, 2021, the airline posted an apology on Chinese social media accounts confirming the incident and stating that both the captain and the flight attendant have been suspended. Measures to prevent a recurrence have been taken along the lines of China's Civil Aviation Authority. Passengers reported on Chinese social media accounts on March 6th that the physical fight was initiated by the captain. It was his fault. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. So, well. <laughs> I'm wondering if they don't have, like, formal procedures uh, like many of the airlines do around the world. I know for sure here in the U.S. and the one that I fly for, we do. And uh, every single flight attendant knows the routine. And uh, you also end up briefing it as well on your initial briefing with them just to make sure that everybody's on the same page. But apparently here, um, the captain thought it was going to happen a certain way. And uh, the lead flight attendant thought it should be done another. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting one. I've never... Uh... Never heard of a of an altercation of this magnitude happening. You know, no, it sounds like real like fisticuffs there. Yeah, yeah, we had one where a married couple on the flight deck uh, had a go at each other, didn't we? Uh, they took their fight. Both of them came out of the flight deck and had their argument in the galley area, leaving Lovely. the flight deck unmanned or unwomaned. It yeah. was the yeah. first time I've heard of the captain actually having a fight <laughs> with the cabin crew. You know, you think uh, that they just save that for their home life. <laughs> Yeah. Well, a little yeah. concerning because you would hope that in a professional environment, someone who's made it to the level of captain is better able to use their personal resources to deal with, um, you know, things that don't quite go the way they want them to and move through the appropriate channels. I'm, I'm definitely, yeah. Don't like no, that. no, yeah. at least wait till you get on the ground, then beat the crap out of them. But I mean, no, it's not a fight. Come on. <laughs> Uh, exactly. That's what I would do. Wait till you get to the bar. That way you have like a beer bottle you can use to hit him in the mouth. <laughs> or the arm. No, this is, this is, the guy's is... arm. Oh, How man. the hell do you manage to break a person's arm like that? Oh, oh man. Pretty strong. Right, uh, this, is, this is why I fly freight. Yeah, it's just, uh, man. Well, you know, Boxes Rick, don't fight back usually. You're smart yeah. because this happens all the time in the passenger airlines. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can't I, tell uh, you how many uh, times. Uh, I've had my tooth broken and I've broken the arm of a flight attendant. <laughs> no, I remember when I what are we going? I was we were flying from from somewhere in South America up to uh up to uh, New York City up to JFK and I used to always tell the flight attendants that uh, past uh, 
um, uh, the um, there was a point down there on the airway we always used to take. It was called Ursus, and that was the FYR changeover point from Havana to uh, to uh, the Miami Center. And uh, from yeah, and usually from that point on, from that point on, I used to tell the flight attendants that uh, uh, you know, and my 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 uh, cockpit crew to try to time their bathroom breaks to happen south of Ursus, so that from Ursus on which is about an hour and a half uh, flight. We basically have the uh, cockpit door closed because, you know, security issues, you know, concerns and all that stuff after 9-11 and all that. And I remember <laughs> flying, and the night before, there'd been a soccer match between the two, uh, I guess, the top teams down in uh, down in Ecuador. And um, uh, two passengers were sitting next to each other, obviously, one from one team and the other one from, from the other, you know, both wearing their respective jerseys. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, words ensued. The uh, fight broke out, and then uh, uh, one of the guys, I don't know how he got a hold of the other guy's passport, tore it up, and then uh, uh, ate part of it. Like, actually oh, ate geez. the stupid thing. And I remember I remember the flight attendant calling me, uh, telling me that the guy had, ate, uh, he had eaten the other guy's passport. I, I remember going, what? He, he, he did. See. So I, it, was, it was at that moment that I decided, you know what? You can have your passenger flying. <laughs> I'm not one of them fly boxes. to get out of this business. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'm over it. Yeah, are you not feeding them anything? Or they're he was how so many, hungry. <laughs> how many? I want to know how many boxes have gotten to an altercation with one another since you've been flying cargo. Uh, yeah. no. Well, uh, yeah, no, 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 not not that many. Not that many. Uh, just, uh, just a few sheep, pigs, resources. No, those are those are those are usually uh, those are usually uh, very very well sedated. I remember the time the time I. Uh, the few times that I've flown, well, actually not few, I've only done it once. The, the time I flew elephants from uh, uh, south of Africa over to uh, the uh, a, uh, a zoo in Mexico City via Amsterdam, uh, we had a number of handlers to make sure that those guys were, uh, you know, very very well. Cool. Uh, I mean, they weigh a sedated. lot. You get them yeah. moving around. Not yeah. You, good you don't for you don't want you don't want an elephant uh, eating the other elephant's passport. That'd be a bad deal. So, that would be uh, no. This was uh, presumably be terrible. Yeah. This All was presumably when you're on the jumbo jet. Yeah. Ah, uh, no, this was not triple seven. Oh, I get it. <laughs> oh, well, where's okay. the darn rim shot? Not the jumbo jet then. The jumbo <laughs> jet. Yeah. The the the, dump, the dumbo jet. <laughs> dumbo jet. There you go. There you go. Show title. Uh, I, I've got a new name for it now. <laughs> Somebody write that down. I there got you go. I'm, on, I'm playing Liz right now. I got there it. you go. Well, I mean, we might uh, have a title and we're only, what, three minutes in? I like it. Sometimes, yeah. you Sometimes know, it just happens. Just yeah. Yeah. Nick will be finished with the cover it. art before we yeah, even know, right? end the show. <laughs> he's, yeah, already, he's already done. looking up at Triple Seven and putting some big <laughs> elephant ears on it. And, you know, like the song. Uh, that was good stuff. Let's move on. Let's try to how it flies now. Sorry? Go ahead. Sorry. Let, at least we know how it flies now. Flaps its <laughs> ears. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I think we should move on to another news topic and maybe get another idea for a show title. Um, this one is uh, Final Report. Uh, it was an accident, a TUI or a TUI, Belgium Boeing 737-800 uh, registration, ooh, Jay, uh, Oscar, Oscar, Juliet, Alpha, Yankee, performing flight 3640 from Brest in France to Marrakesh in Morocco, landed on Marrakesh's runway 10 
1218 local time, but struck its tail onto the runway surface on touchdown. The aircraft rolled out without further incident and taxied to the apron. There were no injuries. The aircraft sustained substantial structural damage, however. The aircraft was unable to depart for its return flight and was still on the ground in Marrakesh 20 days later. Sometime in the past... <laughs> again, this is from the Aviation Herald, uh, Simon Vratsky. Sometime in the past, Morocco's BEA released their final report in French only. And then I took out all the stuff where he kind of starts... Complaining, complaining about, about it only being in French? <laughs> yes. Um, the report? We understand your pain. Yes. We do. Oui, oui. Um, the report concludes the probable causes of the accident were inappropriate execution of the landing procedures by the flight crew, <laughs> Duh. Uh, excessive correction by the first officer to reacquire the landing trajectory, late reaction by the captain to rectify the situation, inadequate decision by the captain to continue the landing, and contributing factors were lack of experience by the first officer, unfamiliar terrain for the first officer, and a lack of experience by the type rating instructor training pilot, the captain. Um, let's see. The crew performed a visual approach to runway 10 in favorable weather conditions about 25 nautical miles before the runway threshold. The flight directors were disengaged. The approach was flown manually on raw data. Based on the FDR Data, the aircraft became too low when descending through 200 feet AGL. The first officer corrected. The aircraft now became too high with uh, added engine thrust. Uh, at 100 feet AGL, the thrust was reduced to near idle, and then a high rate of descent developed. Without taking control of the aircraft, the captain increased thrust to reduce the rate of descent. Interesting. However, the aircraft touched down hard and bounced. The captain then took control of the aircraft, but continued the landing. The tail skid as well as the aft fuselage of the aircraft struck the runway surface. Uh, let's see. I think Ouch. I have. Mm. I, I mean, power, so I don't fly jets, but power to idle at 100 feet sounds... Yeah. yeah. Unless yeah. you've got, got 40 knots in hand. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, uh, see, the interesting thing here is that, so there's there's two types of idle for this very reason. You have uh, you have uh, flight idle and approach idle. Usually when you put your flaps, depending on the kind of airplane that you're flying, um, when you select flaps, uh, the engines will go from flight idle to approach idle. And the difference between the two is that approach idle is a little higher bit of an idle so that uh, if you get into an issue, into a situation like this, the response time, the spool time for the engines isn't as long. Uh, but if you're, if you're bringing the, I mean, the power to idle at 100 feet, uh, uh, I mean, uh, yeah. You're, you're, you're talking about what? To stay on a, on a three-degree glide, you need about, what, 750, 100 feet a minute? Uh, at 100 mm -hmm. feet with power at idle. Uh, there's there's just no getting out of that, and 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 the fact that they touched down with it, uh, they they touched as hard as they did, uh, tells me that um, uh, they very likely touched down way below ref speed, which is uh, one of the leading causes of uh, of uh, tail strikes on landing. Um, so yeah, not 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 optimal. Not optimal. No, all, all those idols you mentioned, you didn't actually say first officer idle. Oh, first officer. Idle, idle first officer. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to the first officer, did you mention this, Jeff, but this first officer was training as well? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, okay. that was one of the um, oh, okay. um, factors that yeah. he was yeah. uh, didn't have a lot of experience. But I didn't go into what his experience was. Yeah. So you might want to talk about that. He was 
Uh, 25 uh, years old, yep. 650 hours total time. Total time, 650? Oh. Yeah. Whoa. 500 but somehow hours 500 on type? Yeah. So he flew 150 hours and then jumped into... A 737? 737? Sure. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah. Wow. Hmm. That's, uh, wow. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. But I like, I like what the captain did. He's like... I'll just push up the power a little bit. Maybe that'll cushion the impact. He was wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, actually, and these uh, these bounce landings are something that we that we practice um, quite a bit in uh, in the simulator. Actually, just 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 did that last week, uh, where you where you come in and the and the uh, other pilot, or not the other pilot, but the instructor will will um, purposely um, um, you know cut the power a little early and then bounce the airplane down. And the, and the procedure for this is just basically, you know, at the power, reestablish landing attitude, but you don't actually land. You just go around. I mean, like procedure for us, uh, procedurally after a bounce landing is just to go around because it's just, uh, you can get yourself in a position where you start porpoising and that is, that's even mm -hmm. worse. So uh, just, you know, just, just, just get the heck out and come back around and, and uh, you know, it's stabilized approach and then just land again. And when you're, when you're setting that, that position, that pitch angle to prevent a tail strike. If the airplane happens to touch back down again in the midst of doing the go around, that's okay. In fact, they said you might even expect it if it was a big bounce to begin with. And then another issue here is that, um, uh, I mean, I've, I've never flown jets uh, with a, uh, with a tail mounted engines, but, uh, on the jets that I've flown, um, engines under the wings, the second that you introduce a, a, a high power, uh, a situation out of the engines, uh, the jet has a tendency to pitch up. So that's another mm -hmm. thing you kind of have to be careful about. Um, yeah, so, you don't have to worry I mean, about that on a tail-mounted engine there. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's quite the handful. Quite, quite the handful. I bet. Well, I have flown, um, you know, the L-1011 was like that. But in a certain way, the middle engine, you know, the tail-mounted engine did offset a little bit of that moment arm. But uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, all right. Um, moving on, we have a final report. Again, this is from the uh, this is from AviationSafety.net. Um, continued flight in poor weather led to a 2019 Cessna Caravan float plane crash in Canada. And a couple of our uh, listeners sent us in articles regarding this final report from the. Uh, Canadian, uh, let's see, Transportation Safety Board of Canada, the TSB. Um, they released this uh, not too long ago. Um, the TSB found that the decision to continue flying in poor weather led to the fatal July 2019 controlled flight into terrain occurrence on Addenbroke Island in British Columbia. On 26 July 2019, at around 9.30 local time in the morning, float-equipped Cessna 208 Caravan aircraft, operated by Sierra Seaplanes, departed Vancouver International Water Aerodrome, BC, for a visual flight rules flight to a fishing lodge near Port Hardy, BC, with one pilot and eight passengers on board. At 11.04 local time, the aircraft struck the hillside of Addenbroke Island, 9.7 nautical miles from the destination, the fish camp. Pilot and three of the passengers were fatally injured. Four of the surviving passengers received serious injuries, and one received minor injuries. The aircraft was destroyed. 
The investigation found that the flight departed Vancouver International Water Aerodrome despite reported and forecasted weather conditions that were below VFR requirements near the destination, and that the decision to depart may have been influenced by group dynamics. After encountering poor weather conditions, the pilot continued the flight and reduced visibility without recognizing the proximity to terrain and subsequently impacted the rising terrain of Addenbroke Island. Although the aircraft was equipped with advanced avionics devices, uh, a G-1000, they were configured in a way that made the system ineffective at alerting the pilot to the rising terrain ahead. Additionally, the pilot's attention, vigilance, and general cognitive cognitive function were likely influenced to some degree by fatigue. Although the aircraft was equipped to capture flight data, Air had not established a flight data or data monitoring program, nor was it required to by regulation. However, air operators are not alone in monitoring for safe operations. Following this occurrence, Transport Canada, TC, did not conduct any reactive surveillance initiate new surveillance activities, escalate upcoming surveillance activities, or conduct targeted or compliance inspections. If TC does not apply sufficient oversight of operators, there's a risk that air operators will be non-compliant with regulations or drift toward unsafe practices, thereby reducing safety margins. Following the occurrence, Sierra can contracted an aviation consulting company to conduct an operational and maintenance review updated its standard operating procedures to highlight the limitations of the autopilot system, and added an acceptable use policy on personal electronic devices in the cockpit. So, uh, in the show notes, we'll have the full report by the uh, Transportation Safety Board of Canada, the TSB. But, um, Nick, uh, when you were reading through, so we were talking a little bit about this before we started recording today's show, um, it um, appears that the pilot the of the airplane that crashed wasn't using the full capabilities of this G1000 and some other systems that may have helped him avoid the terrain. Yeah, it's got a um, a terrain avoidance uh, mode, um, but the company and the other pilots in the company as well were in the habit of disabling it. Um, and I'm not familiar enough with this Garmin uh, 1000. Steph knows a little bit about it um, to know why they would do that. But uh, it certainly might have alerted him to the fact that he wasn't where he hoped to be in, in clear open water and that he was actually approaching uh, this island. Um, it's quite possible that he was on uh, intending to fly up this uh, lake on the other side. But because there was company traffic coming down towards him uh, on that side, he had elected to move over to the uh, eastern side of the lake, uh, and which meant that uh, in front of him he had to get around Blair Island and Addenbrooke Island. Um, so he d- didn't have the terrain uh, awareness system activated, which would have shouted him a bit like a GPWS and Tell yeah, it does. It says things terrain like ahead. terrain, terrain, uh, too low or sink rate. It says all those types of things if you're oh, approaching wow. the ground too too quickly. And it's pretty loud. And if you're routinely flying, uh, if you're doing the type of flying where that might bring you close to terrain on a regular basis, I can see the temptation to turn it off because it's loud and distracting. And especially if you're in VFR conditions, you, you can see the ground right there. You don't need it to tell you that you're coming up you know, to, to high terrain. But if you're flying in less than perfect conditions, some marginal stuff, you know, then it's definitely 
an added layer of protection. So you should definitely know how it works and how to make sure that it's enabled or disabled. Um, and the, the G1000 with the um, uh, kind of the synthetic vision and whatnot, if you're um, within certain parameters of the ground, so I think it's something like 100 feet, if the train is within 100 feet of the aircraft based on GPS data, what's loaded into the database, you mm. get red on the screen. Um, and then I think there's also yellow for, and I forget the exact um, heights on that one as well. Um, but if you see that yellow and red on the map, you know you're within you know a certain um, proximity to the ground, or potentially that terrain is higher than where you are. So if you're going to be flying um, aircraft that um, have those features, please know how to use them. Reference the manual. We had a great guest last week, Max Trescott, who's written a book about um, all of that and and might be a little bit more user friendly and palatable than the actual manual but please please make sure you get training on it please make sure you know how to use it um it's it's they also do say um that it's there for situational awareness you know it's not to be um it's not intended to be used as a primary reference Mm -hmm. so please don't be using it as a primary reference Mm -mm. um but it can certainly add to your situational awareness of what's around you if you're um, perhaps not completely familiar, or if you find yourself in weather that you did not expect. But yeah, yeah couple- and the system works. Oh, I'm sorry, Nixer, go ahead. No, no, you carry on all day. No, I was just going to say that it, it it works it works very very similarly in uh, in, in airliners, you know, and you know the, the the colors are the same for everything. You know, it's basically red, bad, yellow. Be careful, and, uh, and the procedure yeah. um, is. Uh, uh, basically the same. You know, you, it's not used for navigation. Uh, it's not something that you uh, that you uh, refer to for for navigation ever. And, yeah, uh, and you, there may lie exactly mm-hmm. the problem, um, Rick, in that um, the terrain SVS uh, that was visual to him uh, would only have shown uh, about six percent of the actual size of the island. It says mm. here in the in the um, analysis. Um, so. Only six oh, percent wow. of the island would have been displayed. The coloration of the remaining ninety-four percent would have been blue, making it look like ocean. So ah. he, it, he he might have thought that he was further away from the island. Might have than thought he, he was still over was. water if it showed yeah. blue directly underneath exactly. the aircraft. I mean, another point is that he was flying with the autopilot on, which was against the company or uh, the manufacturer's. Uh, um, regulations. You're not supposed to use it below like 700 feet if you're in the cruise. He was down around a couple of hundred feet, um, which indicates to me that uh, you know, not ideal, but the at least it gave him perhaps the um, capacity to look out more. Um, the other pilot had passed him, said he had seen the visibility was about a mile, and he had seen the, the uh, island when he went past. So he may have been expecting the island to have become visible. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, we know how quickly in in rain showers, how quickly the visibility can reduce moment to moment. So uh, it obviously, you know, it wasn't visible to him and he flew into the damn thing. Um, now, imagine this. I imagine... Yeah, I, I imagine this. Uh, I've, I've never flown with a, with these, you know, fancy avionics. Uh, you kids now have um, us kids. But, kids. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, my, my my stuff is uh, my stuff pretty old school. But uh, one of the one of the um, one of the modes of the uh, of the uh, terrain awareness system uh, is uh, at least one one of the parameters um, that it uh, uses to uh, uh, issue that. Uh, 
warning is um, closure right to the terrain uh, yes. based on uh, radial altimetry. Now, does this does this a two eight? I, I don't imagine two eight. Mm, it's a, not a based on that. It's it? just based on your descent rate and what it knows your altitude is and proximity to the ground. So, so, so barometric. I can, I can speak right? to it based on um, we had the G one thousand and the the Kodiak flying jumpers, and um, I can speak from experience telling you that the TAWS system can be very persistent in telling you mm. when it it thinks that you're doing things that you shouldn't be doing. Um, because we often would have quite high descent rates, um, mm. you know, and as you're getting closer to the terrain, it will say too low terrain, pull all those things. It, it does say those warnings quite loudly, quite insistently, and on repeat until you stop doing the offending maneuver. I tell you, on the, on the airline side of things, the second that you get a uh, uh, a terrain warning, uh, the first thing you do is you just disconnect all the automation, you just, you know, autopilot off, auto throttle off, push yep. the throttles forward. Jam the power up. Bring the bring yeah. the and obviously the very different type of flying. You know, we're, we're, yep. you know, yeah. So and and make sure the speed yeah. brakes are in so that you don't repeat American nine sixty five and uh, and uh, and you just get the hell out. Um, it's, uh, it's yeah. He, he was going to be unlikely to do that since his yeah. airline uh, his outfit was a VFR only. I mean, yeah. he was supposed to be were... conducting the flight in visual flight rules. So uh, mm. I, I don't know if climbing into the Clag would have been necessarily the best option for him, but certainly persisting on when the visibility was reducing and he wasn't really sure as perhaps exactly of where he was was not ideal either. Um, well, I think, you know, if you find yourself in that situation, you you have to do what you need to do to avoid the terrain. If your only option there is climb, that's where you've had hopefully some instrument, um, at least minimal training so that you can keep yeah I, I wasn't aware of how much he had but i don't i don't another know actually. point um, he's a commercial no. uh, rated pilot but i'm not sure rick mentioned uh in knowledge of the system and how the the garmin thousand works um the company pilots the this guy was a casual um contract pilot uh the company pilots were trained in their flight simulator which has g1000 this guy didn't receive the same training, and I don't know mm. if he had uh, the same exposure to uh, working out how this system operated. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely there's a lot going on with it. Um, it's not overly complicated. It's Garmin, so a lot of, if, especially if you come up through general aviation aircraft in, in North America in the past however many years, you've probably been exposed to some sort of Garmin GPS product. So it works the same way. Um, you just have to know how to get through all the different menus, I mean, menus, play around with it a little bit, figure out what's on, what's off, you know. I think another mm -hmm. factor, and I've put it up a couple of times, uh, an overlay here that shows what happened when the previous flight was heading back to their um, seaplane base in Vancouver. Uh, the uh, accident aircraft kind of offset to the right, to the west, I mean, to the east, and may have been flying in an area that he was not completely familiar with yeah, as far they as terrain go is concerned. more down the, the channel, perhaps, mm. but he was concerned about him. And if the visibility <clears throat> was low and you want to make sure you give enough clearance. Uh, spots of heavy rain. And I'm thinking maybe he just assumed that if he kind of hugged the the uh, eastern shore of this inlet that uh, it wasn't going to be a problem. And then, but you look at this overlay and you can see the flight path that took him right straight into Addenbrooke Island. And then of course you throw into the mix, the fact that the um, uh, what's it called? The um, synthetic vision system is only giving you Showing what appears to island. be 6% of the actual size of mm -hmm. the island. You know, a lot of things I think conspired to um, 
caused yeah, this accident. I can I can see all of that. that uh, it was interesting they brought up uh, the group bias thing because they uh, they all the pilots that morning had a usual kind of uh, get together and talk about the flights they were going to do and they did that in the presence of uh, the chief pilot who was also the boss uh, of the outfit um, and uh, there was a question mark as to where how many of the pilots uh, might have felt under pressure to fly because the boss was there and he was had actually filled the spot of another pilot who said, well, I don't have the experience mm-hmm. to fly right. in these mm-hmm. conditions. I'm and not going to go. Someone someone wisely took themselves yeah. out of that situation. They said, no, this is yeah. pushing it for me. Yeah. I'm not going to do yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Which I think is an incredibly adult decision. Mm-hmm. So, but, oh, so sure. the chief pilot and the boss said, well, I'll, I'll do your flight. And uh, this chap, because he's probably uh, on a basis of a casual employment may not have felt perhaps that he could do that. And he was also pretty fatigued. If you look at the number of hours of work he'd put in over the uh, as an average over the preceding weeks and in the in the previous week, he was a hardworking boy. And in addition, he lived in an RV on the edge of Vancouver Airport, uh, where he would not have got good quality sleep. And he was regularly up uh, to go to work at three o'clock in the morning, uh, and sometimes after only five hours of sleep. So, mm. you know, you you put all this together and think, well, I, the guy may not have been thinking or working uh, on for all four cylinders, uh, you know, when he was doing this flight anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, lots to lots to take away. Unfortunately. Yep. Yeah. All these things combined, don't they? Sometimes yeah. just to make yep. that awful yeah. result. It's it's never just one cost. The old Swiss cheese. All right. So um if you want to read the full report, uh, it's in the show notes. And thank you again to and our listeners. Incredibly detailed report, isn't yeah. it, Jeff? Uh, yeah, very much. But what a lot of airlines would say, well, this is a pretty minor event, but uh, no, it's it's page upon page. That's Canadians it. for you. I appreciate it. I mean it's good to be able to learn from from all of that. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's go back to the aviationsafety.net website for this final report. Uh, was a serious incident involving a 737, Peruvian Airlines Flight 122, a Boeing 737-3Q8, uh, veered off the side of the runway after landing at Iquitos Airport, Peru. Did I do that all right, uh, Rick? Yeah, yeah, Iquitos, that's good. Uh, the aircraft was operating a passenger service from Lima, Peru. After starting the descent to Iquitos, the crew requested updated information on the weather conditions, being informed by ATC that a convective, convective system, uh, Cumulonimbus ZB, was approaching from the northeast to the airport area. Winds were 110 degrees at 12 to a maximum of 21 knots. ATC instructed the crew to maintain a high speed on the approach and to report at reporting point Panta before starting an ILS approach to runway 6. Um, at 20.07, Iquitos ATC reported a special METAR, reporting visibility of more than 8 kilometers with broken cloud cover at 1,500 feet and a convective, convective system at 2,500 feet, broken cloud cover at 10,000 feet, rain over the station, and a wet runway with wind from 110 at 13 to a maximum of 21. ATC cleared the flight to continue with the ILS approach to runway 6. Uh, before landing, ATC indicated a wind of 130 degrees at 11 to 16. During the final approach, the aircraft gradually drifted to the left of the runway center line. On short final, 
the crew began to crab the plane until an altitude of about 50 feet when the aircraft was decrabbed again to align it with the runway. The aircraft then touched down 22.55 meters, about uh, 74 feet to the left of the runway centerline. I'm thinking, you know, most runways are about 150 feet wide. Mm-hmm. So 74 yeah. feet to the left of the runway it's centerline. Kind of, kind of pushing the, it on the edge there. Of the... Yeah. At a distance of 358 meters, which is about 1,175 feet from the threshold, the aircraft veered off the left side of the runway, damaging several runway lights. The aircraft rolled parallel to the runway with three gear on muddy and rocky terrain until the flight crew was able to steer the aircraft back onto the runway. The aircraft had covered a distance of approximately 518 meters outside of the runway or off the runway. The reversers of both engines were not used, probably because the number two engine reverse was inoperative. After re-entering the runway at 990 meters with a speed of 60 knots, the aircraft taxied to the uh, parking apron. The aircraft sustained damage to the main gear, the inlets of both engines, and the lower fuselage. And uh, they say the probable cause here, I think, um, let's see, uh, Liz, if you don't mind, if you could find that overlay uh, 01D and put that on there. there. Uh, Okay. Uh, Yeah, Liz is back with us, by the way. Welcome back, Liz. Hey, Liz. (laughs) Um, There's some uh, mud tracks uh, to the left of the runway, (laughs) just kind of paralleling the runway there for a while. Um, Loss of situational awareness of the flight crew during landing, who did not realize that the aircraft destabilized during the high reset, moving laterally to the left due to the effect of weather conditions of strong winds, rain, and reduced visibility, generating a runway departure or runway excursion. And they said the contributing factors were the presence of a storm over the airport, which significantly increased the operational load of the flight crew, the action of crosswinds, uh, turbulence, and heavy rain affected the stability of the approach, a condition that the crew should have analyzed to make the decision to perform a go-around. The airport infrastructure is a factor related to the aircraft's runway excursion, since the main runway does not have, and I've never heard of this term before, a runway axis light system. And I, I did look this up, didn't find any specific uh, reference to a runway axis light system. And I'm thinking maybe they mean runway edge lights or no, I think I've been to Iquitos. I've been I've landed on that runway. Oh, um, okay. and, and a lot of, uh, a lot of these airports um, down in South America, um, um, a lot of these runways are, I don't know if this is the case. Well, I can't remember if this is the case for this one or not, but a lot of them are, are, are not um, uh, precision approach runways. And so you don't have a uh, centerline lights. Um, so um, maybe that's what they're talking about, but uh, that's the only thing that comes to mind. Okay. Yeah, I did look it up and said it was uh, paved surface and lighted, but it doesn't really, that was about as much detail as I could find about the runway lighting system. So there you have it. Um, uh, 20 knots across is not an excessive no, crosswind. No, I'm looking at the crosswind here. Okay. I'm looking at the crosswind here, and, and even with the gust factor in, uh, you're only looking at 15 knots. Right. Which, I mean, yeah. I mean, we weren't there. We don't know what happened, but uh, it's no, not. It uh, just seems there was something a little lacking in technique here, because we yeah, know we don't yeah. take the drift off until mm-hmm. we're more or less in the flare. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you take it off at a, what you said, 50 feet or 100 feet? 50, 50 feet. The aircraft mm-hmm. was decrabbed. Again, you're, you're, you know, all that nice, careful lining up you've done, it's all going to disappear. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah, you have to right. make a compensation yeah. when you start decrabbing. Yeah, you, 
Exactly. You've got to do something to keep the airplane on the satellite. Well, you know what? Yeah. This crew in the next news item, um, they could teach this other crew something about landing and cross. Oh, wait, no. <laughs> actually uh -oh. kind of similar yeah. yeah so we we talked about this one i don't know if it was the last episode or a couple of episodes ago yes. uh the uh the atp british aerospace uh, atp dash foxtrot um landing at uh, birmingham airport and the uh there was quite a strong crosswind again not outrageously strong um, and we were kind of analyzing, we, we watched the YouTube video of the uh, touchdown and we were trying to figure out exactly what kind of controls they were using for this landing. And we also did mention that, um, it was being investigated and, uh, they came out with their final report regarding this. Um, let's see, I'm going to go to the, uh, conclusion by the air accidents investigation branch. Uh, despite the challenging conditions, the crew did not discuss the conditions in any detail. Uh, they did not brief who would be holding the control column during either landing roll or what actions they would take if they were required to abandon the approach or landing. In other words, no briefing about a possible go-around and the procedures involved, etc. Uh, the first approach resulted in confusion between the crew over going around, which could have itself resulted in an incident or accident. Uh, so this landing was not their first attempt. Uh, the confusion was eventually overcome by the commander calling for a go around. So a good decision was made that first time around. The second approach resulted in a significant runway excursion due to the use of incorrect crosswind technique and the application of full right aileron. It's likely that the crew's experience, inexperience of landing and strong crosswinds contributed to the misalignment at touchdown. It is likely this application of right aileron was a result of an inappropriate motor program to steer the aircraft right. <laughs> now, this like is especially... wheel in the car? <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, when you're first learning how to fly and you're trying to steer an airplane with just rudder pedals, so yeah. you want, the airplane starts drifting to the left and you just start taking that yoke and start steering it like, trying to steer it like a car and go, well, it's, it's not working. And then you go, oh, that's right. Rudder pedals. Got to write up the steering system when I get to the ground. When I park the steering wheel in. Steering wheel in up. Ineffective. Exactly. So. Yeah, um, let's go ahead and put that overlay up. Um, this is uh, a depiction of where the airplane touched down. You can kind of see the skid marks going straight for the uh, left side of the runway. And uh, they went off the runway. And I don't know if they hit the airfield taxiway sign or just barely missed it. Uh, and then finally got the airplane back on the runway. Um, but uh, let's see. Let's continue with their uh, uh, report. Um, the second approach. Okay. So we talked about the full right aileron and the, uh, inappropriate motor program to steer the aircraft, right? Neither attempt at landing used the crosswind technique as laid down in the manufacturers and operators manuals. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Apparently they don't have a lot of experience or practice doing these types of crosswind no landings. Briefing, no technique. Yeah. It was fortunate that the ground was hard due to a lack of recent rain, except for the taxiway sign. Oh, I guess the taxiway sign was a casualty. There were no other obstacles in the way of Sierra Echo, Mike, Alpha, Oscar, 
such as other aircraft or vehicles. Good thing. As a result, despite a 450-meter excursion off of the runway, there was no damage to the aircraft or the airport facilities and no injuries to the crew, who were the only people on board. So they got lucky. Yeah. They, yeah. they did, didn't they? Um, it looks like uh, they could have used either the crabbing technique, which we more or less just discussed, or a wing down technique, either was available, or a combination of the two. But what you have to, it looks like they were doing a crab technique, but they didn't straighten the aircraft. Uh, and of course, the one thing the airplane's going to do is when the tires hit the ground, it's going to set off in the direction that the airplane's now pointed because those tires are going to give a lot of friction, particularly on a dry runway and an aircraft of this type. And because they didn't straighten the aircraft up and it was still pointing towards the grass, it was going to straighten off to head off towards the grass. And it was at this point that the uh, captain um, applied the aileron, which lifted his wheels. <laughs> so. You remember in the video, it, was, it looks like all of a sudden it goes into that wheelbarrow mode. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I didn't notice when we were looking at the video for the first time that the right aileron was applied. And now that it makes complete sense to me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it should so be the it, opposite aileron to exactly <laughs> in this situation. So he's, he's got his right left, left wing coming up because he's straightened a little bit. He hasn't straightened all the way. And, and he's also applying right aileron, in fact, full right aileron. Oh, uh, so, yeah, the airplane's going to destabilize terribly. Uh, so, yeah, it really just very poor technique on, on this attempt at landing. But it does sound like they didn't get a lot of training. And... Um, neither of them were terribly confident about doing crosswind landings. So I'm going, you know, their training department should really have perhaps helped them out a bit more here. Mm-hmm. I agree. But it, they even make the point of saying that they didn't utilize either the manufacturers nor the nah. company's <laughs> techniques for crosswind landings. <laughs> like, Not really. I don't no. think they're, they were gone that day, I think. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, not ideal. Brilliant. Sorry, guys. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, not really much else to say about that, but uh, yeah, they were lucky that nothing worse happened here. All right. Hey, you know, we talked about the Frontier de-icing incident at Nashville on a recent show. Mm-hmm. Um, just received this from one of our listeners, uh, one of my neighbors just up the road in Alpharetta, Ray Williams. He sent this to us, I believe it was yesterday. He said. Uh, he was listening to episode 463. Um, there was a kind of interesting note reported by Peter Fuller at flightaware.com weekly aviation news and photo newsletter of March 5th, which quoted one mile at a time, which is the blog from which we got that story, uh, mentioning a post by someone named Levi, who states, quote, and this is Levi commenting, I operated that flight and the story is a little inaccurate. The real story is we were cleared for takeoff. I had briefed a deadheading first officer at the gate before we left that I would ask him to check the wings before takeoff. So we took the runway and I called back to get a thumbs up from him. And he said he couldn't see the wings because they were covered in ice. That's when I opened up the cockpit window and I leaned out to get a better look and saw all the snow and ice. I never had a flight attendant call me to tell me there were there was still ice on the wings. One of the flight attendants took that picture, but none of them called me. So, wow. Okay. Huh? 
What's that? It's a little strange. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, that, that none of the flight attendants called? Well, one of them took the picture, but didn't call you? Didn't well, I call? think maybe well, I wonder if they took the picture the after incident, the fact. Okay, they, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, after the fact, yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I misread that at first. Yeah. But you know what I'm going to do? That picture, um, I'm going to make sure that it's in my cell phone. And I'm going to, any time in the future where we de-ice, I'm going to have this as a briefing item for the flight attendants. And I'm going to say, see that picture? It should Bad. not look like that. <laughs> no. <laughs> and if it does look like that, or there's snow and ice still on the wings after we've de-iced, would you please call the cockpit and let us know so that we don't take mm-hmm. off like that? Yeah. I mean, that's a fantastic that two idea. seconds to say and two seconds for them to... Yeah. Take a look at and give you a call if need be. And then if there's any doubt, then we get out of the cockpit, do a Take cabin a inspection ourselves, looking out the windows. And then, of course, if there's any question even beyond that, then, you know, go and get de-iced again or go back to the gate or come up with some other idea. Mm-hmm. I like yeah. it. Go, go to the bar. Or yeah, there <laughs> we go. Call it a day. Call it a wait day. Wait until yep. summer. <laughs> yeah. wait, wait till summer to fly. Raise the black flag and head for the bar. There you go. Yeah, I was uh, I was I was commenting the other day that uh, um, see that's that that's a luxury that, uh, that I don't have, for example, because I can't I can't access the um, uh, well. First of all, I don't have any windows in my jet anymore, um, no, like portals or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, don't you have any um, cameras? No, no, no. So on the seven four and uh, on the triple seven, you could actually walk alongside the um, the. Um, uh, the ULDs, the unit load devices, you know, down the, both the right oh, and yeah, the left. Oh, yeah, the UDLs. Yeah, the, the UDLs, exactly. <laughs> and there are, and there are two little two little portholes that you can look out um, for this very reason. But on the 7.6, um, uh, the ULDs fit, you know, snugly in the fuselage. There's no way out. There's no way of, of, of getting out there and looking. Mm-hmm. And so you rely entirely on the competence of your uh, de-icing team and uh, – and uh, yeah, and, and and looking out the window isn't really well. I, I guess it depends on lighting conditions and such. But um, you know, the wings on a seven six are about a half a you know half a city block behind me, so it's mm-hmm. uh, it's also not 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 optimal. But uh, yeah, but I, I when I, I told Jeff a couple of me a couple of days ago that when I used to fly passengers, I used to uh, brief my flight attendants that it, if they even you know felt like something was out of the norm, they used to call me because oftentimes. Um, the cabin crew are the first ones to know when things are going wrong, and uh, you know a, a, a timely a timely uh, uh, remark uh, can you know certainly uh, make all the difference. So um, it's important. I mean, that's why you know they they are part of the crew as well. Yep. All right. Well, that does it for our news section. That means, guess what? It's time to get to know us about you getting to like us getting to hope you like us too or something to that effect i don't think those are the words but i like yeah. it okay wait i like it we'll have to look so it. i'm That's gonna have to right. make new words to getting that, to so know you sure. getting to like you getting to hope <laughs> that you like me too i think is the actual words. I'm not sure if that's what you're saying, though. No, I did. Well, because I said like us, <laughs> okay. because it's getting to know uh, us. See? Uh, I had to change uh, it up yeah. a little bit. I see what you did there. Come on. Come on, man. Come on, man. Come on, man. Come on, man. All right. Um, 
Rick, you know, you weren't here with us What's last up? week and we missed you. We really yeah, did. I missed you guys too. Um, but um, because of that, we're going to, we're going to penalize you and make you go first and tell us what's been up with you. Oh man. Where, where do I start? Well, it's uh let me think here, get my hamster going. Um, so okay. I did uh, my yearly recurrent uh, training, my proficiency check. Oh, there, there he is. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so uh, four days, uh, two days of classroom. Well, actually one day of classroom. The second day was uh, virtual, which was uh, quite interesting. Um, and then uh, a, uh, a what's called a PC warm-up, um, uh, not personal computer, but proficiency check. Uh, you basically run through a uh, kind of like a dress rehearsal of the stuff that you're going to be uh, doing the following day on your proficiency check uh, proper. Uh, your, your standard stuff, you know, your 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 engine failures, hydraulic failures, um, electrical, whatever, whatever the, uh, the the lesson plan calls for. A couple of uh, hand flown approaches, lots and lots of crosswinds, and then the following day you go and uh, do your uh, proficiency check, which is basically a carbon copy of the warm up. And then if you did if you do good, then uh, you get to uh, fly for another year. So uh, that that all went fine. Obviously, you did it better than fifty percent. Yes, 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 yes. Fifty fifty one percent. So that uh, awesome. that's that's good. So uh, and then I uh, I um, so I'll be turning forty here in in, in a couple of weeks and. Um, I, I I thought to myself, hmm, I mean, if, if if I get my medical before I turn 40, if I renew it, then I don't have to come back in six months. Because my, my old medical, the one that I, I had before I, I renewed it just now, it was good till about, uh, I think, October or November. Um, which meant that I'd have to, you know, gone back and gotten a new one six months after and do the whole EKG thing and all that stuff. So I figured I'm, I'm down here in Miami, but the, the dock is there. So I'll just set something up. And I went straight after the PC over to the, to the FA guy, not the, uh, uh the AME guy and, uh, got my, uh, medical renew. So I'm, I'm good for another year. Um, so that, uh, that was nice. And then after that, I, uh, commercialed, uh, up to, uh, no, I didn't go to work yet. I went up to Virginia to visit my parents. I haven't seen them in a little while, so that was nice. Um, you know, hung out with the family and all that, and then I uh, made it over to uh, Ontario and uh, not no, well, to Riverside, sorry, and then took a jet over to uh, uh, Hawaii. Went over to Maui and then over to Kona. Maui was really interesting. It's a short little runway. And you land there at uh, max landing weight, so that kind of that, that brought brought back some memories uh, of uh, putting a uh, fully loaded seven sixty seven on a short runway. So that was that was very very interesting. Got to do that, and then uh, flew over to Kona overnight in Kona. Uh, hung out on the beach yesterday, drank some Kona coffee, and then uh, made it back to the mainland uh, just this morning. Landed at about uh, seven thirty this morning. Took a nap. And here I am, heading back home today for a couple of days off before heading back out on the road. So, all right. good. Staying busy. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. Very cool. Um, Nick, what you been up to, man? Uh, I tried to blow myself up, but apart oh. from that, everything's been fine, thanks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just the standard stuff. That was wow. what I was expecting to hear. I no, no, no. Heard no, any no, of this no. Yet, so please, wow. details. You got, you got my, to... you got my attention. 
<laughs> well, I, I, I decided uh-huh. that I was going to do a few electrical jobs, um, <laughs> one of which is to put a uh, an on-off switch on this ATM Mini because I'm fed up having to unplug it every time I want to turn it off. So I've now got a switch. And I thought um, the uh, my, my lovely lady wife is always complaining that I leave the light on in our larder. Uh, you Americans know what a larder is? Yeah, it's where we sto- we store the lard. That's where we keep your lard. Yeah, yeah. It, it's no, it's a Russian motor car. Didn't you know that? Oh no, that's a larder <laughs> <laughs> in the larder. Um, anyway, uh, it's uh, it's a storage cupboard uh, for food, and it's cool, uh, gotcha. nice. But and in the top there's a little light. Yeah, uh, Patrick. And I always leave it on. Of course, if you leave a light on in a cool cupboard, it rather defeats the object, doesn't it? <laughs> it becomes an oven. to warm it up. <laughs> and you should do, you should insulate the bulb and then, uh, you know, it'll be good. You actually you can't yeah. Wrap it. Wrap the bulb in paper. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Done. So I decided 50%. to put a door switch on. Okay. So I, Judge uh, please, uh, I currently am suffering from a frozen shoulder. Um uh, another one. I've had one. This is the, my other one. Um, Just trying to be symmetrical. Adhesive capsulitis. <laughs> adhesive capsulitis. capsulitis. Yeah, so anyway, what it means is that I have very limited movement and very, and it's very painful if I try and exceed it. So anyway, I'm standing inside this larder trying to get both hands above my head to fix all this wiring. Uh, and I eventually got it kind of sorted out. It's a bit complicated because it's very old wires and no longer has the standard color codes to it that like all half the wires just black (laughs) (laughs) this sounds dangerous (laughs) so anyway i make a reasonable stab at it uh finish it up and turn the uh power back on and flick the light switch and nothing happens so i went no, it didn't blow up, Rick. You see, the, yet, I'm jumping to conclusions no, here. I know. I'm, I'm, so I'm, I'm at the edge of my seat over here. There's obviously <laughs> a problem here. So I'll get my multimeter out and check the voltages. Mm. Uh, bearing in mind that our voltages are they're manly voltages. They're, <laughs> they're twice, twice, the, twice the voltages that you have in, in your nice little country. Over <laughs> yeah, that's there. terrifying, Our silly by the way. Like, plug <laughs> yeah. into my yes, those, in the bathroom. Those silly little voltages. Yes. Just explode <laughs> well, it me. means that our, our, all our utilities work at a decent rate rather than just limping around the place like, you know, someone with a broken leg. <laughs> um, so I, I turned my multimeter on. I started poking around. I'm looking at the display, and it's it's just looking real weird. I mean, then just random numbers, and I'm going – there's something wrong with this multimeter. So I'm messed about with it. Click, click, Definitely click, a problem thought, with the meter. Yeah, it couldn't be anything else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, well, yeah, okay. But I mean, the display was kind of flickering and it was, there were odd decimal places appearing and it definitely shouldn't be there. And some so smoke. I thought, well, I'll, I'll just <laughs> try it on a normal uh, 240 volt plug in the wall, you know, a socket. <laughs> so I, I plug it in and turn it on and. <laughs> It's a big bang. <laughs> you blew up the multimeter? I blew up the multimeter. <laughs> Yay. Which, which my electrician, Brilliant. very clever spacecraft uh, pilot friend of mine said you shouldn't be able to do, but apparently I have. So. <laughs> well, I have At that proof. point, I Just threw it in me. the bin. <laughs> I have gone on to Amazon to buy a new one. And uh, my expert spacecraft um, guidance electronic expert 
Izzy Wizzy bloke mate is going to give me some advice as to <laughs> my advice: hire a le- an electrician. There you go. Now nah, you see, once you get on that path, it's because he's going to look at this and say, "Oh, this is a complete mess. I need to tear it all out and start again." Mm. I well, just want to put one little switch in the into future. it. I'm just, you know, like, <laughs> I'm just putting one little switch in line on a on a circuit. It can't be that hard. Sounds simple. So it is. Mm-hmm. What I've done, same that up. same video switcher that you have. I just plugged it into a regular power strip that has like a little toggle on and off, and so I just uh, like hit the off switch cheating. and. It turns off. Now that that could have, oh, I've got it plugged in. I wonder if I've got a, if I've got a. Now you see, I've got it plugged into a, a thing which <laughs> doesn't have a switch on it. Don't touch those two wires, Nick. <laughs> don't, don't do it. Uh, okay. No, I mean I tell you when I when I was going through AMP school and I I, uh, I learned about uh, you know amperage and voltage and all that stuff. I was that's that's when I decided just 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 like I decided not to fly passengers after the passport uh, fiasco yeah after learning about uh, you know hertz and amperage i was like nope i'm not working with electricity uh, amps nope. amps do hurt you're yeah, right so i was gonna say so they can mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. why i just do electrodiagnostic testing as part of my day job <laughs> i actually shock people <laughs> yeah. oh, that's true nice idea yeah. huh. so it's not all needles there's more fun to be in. wow wow mm-hmm. electric shock Mm-hmm. Small amp. <laughs> Micah says, sounds like 50 Shocking. hertz to me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, Micah, always on his feet. I love Nah, that's, that's me. That's been like the exciting thing that's happened to me okay. this week. Well, try not to blow yourself up, Nick, please. <laughs> I, I find it we quite like amusing. having you so. on the show. Yeah, you're, <laughs> you're replaceable. <laughs> Although I tell you, you'd look good with that uh, with that uh, Doc Brown hair, you know, like from Back to the Future. Uh, to look <laughs> oh, yeah. On the, so, uh, yeah. Great, Scott. Great, Well, Steph. Um, yes. Wow. What a great job you and Megan Yay. and Jody yeah. and Ariel did on that PTUK special. Well, that was fantastic. Yeah, that was amazing. You know, I have to have to give credit to um, their producers and behind the scenes guys because they they made us look good. So thanks to them for putting in a lot of hard work. And and yeah, the ladies, we all we all put in a lot of hard work for it as well. Um, kind of leading up to it, we wanted to be good stewards of their show. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the Plain Talking UK. We took over. Last week, actually at their insistence, and uh, did a Women in Aviation special to commemorate International Women's Day, and I think it's Women in History Month. I don't know, we got months and days for everything nowadays, yeah. but um, yeah. it was kind of a nice way to, to just bring a little bit of a different perspective. Um, we kind of interviewed each other, talked about our own aviation experiences. We had a lot of great clips sent in from all from women in all different backgrounds in aviation. So a lot of diversity there and a lot of um, hopefully good representation for um, young women and girls out there who might be looking to get into aviation. Just, we think it's helpful when you, you know, if you're a kid coming up and, you know, thinking about things you want to do, if you can see someone who looks like you doing the things you picture yourself doing someday, then it makes it that much easier to take the leap and go for it. So, no, it turned out really well. And I, w- I was really pleased with um, how well that, that went. Cause you know, we do the show live, uh, you know, recorded and that was live recorded and there can be a few 
uh, possibility or pop, um, opportunities for glitches and things, and those were few and far between. So it went really well. I was, I was very excited. If you haven't seen it yet, you can head over to um, Plain Talking UK's website or their um, podcast feed, and I believe the audio recording is out. I don't know if the YouTube um, video has been republished yet or not. I'm not sure. I should probably know that, but... Anyway, it was it was a lot of fun. And my thanks to those guys for bringing us on board to do that because we had a good time with it and and yeah. So. Well, it was great. You you guys um, you know all hit it off so well, uh, and it was you know both funny, entertaining, and if you don't mind me saying, very professional. Uh, oh, so, what you. are you doing on this show? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is my this is my outlet. <laughs> let my hair down. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. She let it down so much that I don't even see. Yeah. Yeah. We'll half that. of we'll it. We'll get to that in a second. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so yeah, that was that was Friday. Um, Saturday, back to jumping. That was that was good. Um, the U.S. Uh, Parachute Association uh, encourages uh, member drop zones every year to do. Um, oh, I got a um, just a note from producer John on PTUK just now that says link to the YouTube is the same as what it was, what the live show was, and they're both published. So there you go. He's watching us live right now and oh, still, yeah. So thank Checking you. Checking up on you. Yeah, he's making sure I don't screw things up. Still, that's how it goes. I understand that. Um, so anyway, um, so safety day. Um, was Saturday, which is basically um, they put out information. Drop zones can use that to, um, you know, over the winter, fewer people jump, so people are less current, and you just want to get back into the swing of things and talk about talk about aircraft safety. We talk about gear safety. You talk about jumping with other people safety. You talk about uh, just anything you can think about related to to jumping. So a series of lectures throughout the day. Um, usually, there's jumping going on at the same time. It was kind of low ceilings like overcast at 6,000. So um, we pulled out the 182 and did a bunch of hop and pop loads as we call them. So you just take people to basically whatever altitude you can get somewhere north of 3,500 AGL usually. Um, I think we were getting about 5,500 AGL or 5,000 AGL for the day. And we kind of took turns, myself and one other pilot, we took turns flying those loads. Um, so we did nine of them total and I made a jump. So that was, that was fun. Just a little hop and pop. It was actually, despite the over, despite the overcat, yeah, you basically, so you get out of the plane, you delay a couple seconds, and then you deploy your parachute. So pop and pop. And so uh, did that. It was actually really nice, despite the, um, you know, it was very kind of stable, warm air. So it was uh, like mid-60s and no wind, um, very enjoyable. Um, and one of uh, the, <laughs> the lady who does my, Hair, usually, my hairstylist is also a jumper, and she was there for safety day and had brought her um, mobile um, supplies with her because she was going to ah. give some guys some haircuts. And I had shown up with my hair already braided, and just because that was simpler for the day. And I was thinking already about donating it, which I do every couple of years. So I said, hey, before you leave today, um, let's just, like, if, if you don't mind, if you have time. If you don't have time, I'll come see you and make an appointment whenever. She's like, no, let's don't be silly. Let's do it right now. So... Um, we actually ended up, we cut my hair in the parking lot, <laughs> which was pretty fun. Um, but she did a great job. Um, forget how curly my hair is when it's shorter. So, um, but it kind of grows like a weed, so it'll be long again in no time, I'm sure. And that about sums up everything interesting that's happened in the past wow. week. Yeah. That'd be really impressive if she cut your hair while on the jump. While yeah. jumping? Yeah. I feel like scissors. Yeah. Pop snipping. Balls. 
change. Or Mario, a, a pop and snip. Pop, pop and, pop and snip, snip and yeah. pop. Yeah. Although, go. with just like the long braid, it probably you could just go. <laughs> Done. So, if you want to donate it, just make sure you don't please. drop it then. Go <laughs> 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 find it. Well, Liz has informed me that today, March 18th, the day we're recording the show, is National Awkward Moments Day. Oh, I never have any of those. <laughs> Very appropriate for our show. Absolutely. And um, I'll apologize in advance if people weren't here um, for the beginning of the show. There's a very strong-looking line of thunderstorms moving slowly to the area, which will probably be here within the hour. So, uh-oh. if my internet decides to power decides to quit or something, well, will, uh, hopefully, my not. apologies in advance. I hope hope not, but that's uh, yeah. I'm just looking at the radar. Yeah. Well, if you need to mm-hmm. go and hunker down, just uh, let us know. We'll do. It should be fine. Okay. All right. What's been up with you, Jeff? Um, yeah, just you to go. Nothing. Yeah. Uh-huh. Nothing. Really. Nothing. Nothing. So <laughs> I've been, um, well, I see. We postponed one of the shows, didn't we, because of my illness. And uh, But we did get a show done last week. And um, basically, I started feeling better. Um, I'd had a, a fever that I couldn't seem to get rid of for almost 10 days. And, um, finally started feeling better temperature back to normal. And then I started getting this, um, lower back pain, uh, when I lie down at night, it wasn't until in the wee hours of the morning where it started to hurt and it got so painful that it was enough to actually wake me up and I couldn't get back to sleep, which is kind of saying something for me. I'm usually, you know, pretty, uh, good at getting back to sleep after I get up. And uh, so I'm thinking maybe I'll do some research, figure out what, you know, these symptoms might relate to, you know, trying to play doctor without actually going to medical school. <laughs> uh-huh. But, we'll talk about that later. Yeah, I know. But, you know, I did go see a doctor, which I'm about to tell you. Good. Um, and so I, I kind of narrowed it down to, I'm thinking, the possibility of something going on with my kidney, my right kidney. Um, and uh, so I'm thinking I should probably have this checked out. So I made an appointment with uh, my, my wife uh, a couple times in the last, I don't know, five, six years has had kidney stones. And there was a doctor that she really liked and uh, at uh, Georgia Urology. And I, I was talking to Linda and I said, uh, you know, what were your symptoms and what was that? What was that doctor's name that you used? And I'm thinking, you know, I don't have a primary care ph- physician. I will soon. Trust me. Uh, but uh, I'm thinking, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get an appointment with him or not, because you, usually those kind of specialists require some kind of a referral or whatever. And uh, I called up the uh, the practice anyway on, on my own and said, I don't know what to do here. I don't know if I need a referral, uh, but I'd like to make it, you know, an appointment for the doctor to kind of check me out. And so they gave me an appointment. So I went on uh, Monday afternoon. Um, had an appointment with a uh, urologist and uh, they checked out my uh, urine sample and everything else and everything checked out great. And um, it was funny after we had talked a little bit in the, uh, in the examination room and we were out uh, in the hallway and he said, you know, so you kind of did it old school. He doesn't realize uh, what an old school guy I am actually. He goes, you know, like back in the days when people had fevers and they go into the sweat 
tent or whatever they call it. Sweat, sweat lodge. Uh, sweat lodge. There you go. <laughs> and uh, he said, yeah, you know, you just let that fever do its thing. And uh, maybe whatever you had the fever for, maybe it took care of. And it's possible maybe that kidney is just uh, reacting to all the analgesics I was taking to try to get my fever down, you know, to a normal level. Uh, I don't know. That was from a doctor. I didn't come up with that. It was a doctor. Uh, but, um, so he gave me some drugs. Um, um, one of which is like a generic, uh, Flomax, which, uh, is something that he said, you know, I'm going to treat you like you actually do have kidney stones, even though there's no indication that you do. Um, and so I'm going to write these prescriptions and he said, don't take the generic Flomax version or one until you get back from your trip. Cause he said it was okay for me to go on this trip. And uh, he said, because sometimes it makes you lightheaded. I'm thinking, yeah, probably not a good idea to <laughs> try to fly airplanes uh, being lightheaded. He said, but this other one, it's uh, called naproxen. It's um, anti-inflammatory. Naproxen. And, uh, mm-hmm. So he said, you can start taking that right AKA away. AKA Aleve. Also known as Aleve. Yeah, it's like a super strong Aleve, I guess. Um, well, it's just the generic name for generic uh, name. Aleve is the brand name of naproxen. Okay. But if you're, you can get it in different doses if it's prescri- prescribed okay. as opposed well, to over the counter. I have no idea if this is a strong or regular dose or whatever, but he said, you know, um, this may help with the pain in your back. And it sure has. I have ever since I started taking these, I have not had any pain in my back. Now, I don't know if that if, means if that only there's still something going on or not. If only you knew a doctor who, you know, knew anything about back pain. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I can't think of yeah, anything. Yeah, right. yeah, uh, no, all I can think handy. of is that picture of you, Steph, with the uh, syringe. And that just makes me... <laughs> Uh, scared and uh, so yeah better to take yeah there you <laughs> what, go there's the that one. what's so scary about that uh, <laughs> everything <laughs> I've got the cure for what ails you that's right it's yeah, the good get stuff get over here you so, think the naproxen is stronger you know he said <laughs> it's possible it could be musculoskeletal issue going on um, could be there are some other organs in that area you know he said so I've also ordered up a cat scan so that I'd like to kind of see if something's going on with that but we're gonna cats in there pardon me why would you want to scan a cat cats in there yeah. I don't know um, we've got a couple of cats <laughs> at home I, and um, I don't think I, that would uh, fix anything yeah I don't know it doesn't make any sense to me but you know yeah. you doctors <laughs> what the heck they're talking about anyway so I'm I mm-hmm. may end up getting a cat scan next week or whatever to see what's going on but right now I feel great and I feel like whatever was ailing me um, has been fixed but you know it's possible in the rear that view mirror it hasn't but uh, yeah, in the rear view mirror. So I was pleased that um, on Monday afternoon, he said he was cool with me flying the trip. And uh, so um, left on Tuesday, was just one easy leg to uh, Houston Hobby Airport. And uh, when all of the passengers got off, the, the last passenger got off the airplane, I noticed his uh, flight bag was a pilot bag. And, uh, but he was dressed in shorts and a short sleeve shirt and uh, it was all cash. Um, but he, uh, he, he handed me this note and he goes, Hey, Jeff, he said, uh, when I heard you make the PA, I thought, well, that voice sounds familiar to me. And it's, it, you know, you realize that, um, I was one of the uh, hosts of this podcast. And so he wrote me this little note, by the way, I, I uh, had been, out on sick leave for like two and a half weeks. And the last uh, time that I flew the airplane was on the 26th of February. 
It may sound like I'm making some sort of an excuse here. And if you think that, you're right. I'm making an excuse. It was a firm landing at Houston Hobby. Uh, they <laughs> landed on one three right. It was kind of a short runway. Haven't okay. flown the airplane in a while. It was not the smoothest landing, let me just say that. And uh, so he, he gives me this note. <laughs> he says, Captain Jeff, great flight. And, and then he wrote smooth, and then he crossed smooth out. <laughs> and he put in pretty good. So... <laughs> Great flight and pretty good landing in Houston. Thanks a lot, Marcus. Um, my dad, Wolfgang, has been a longtime fan of the show and got me listening some years ago. A German aerospace engineer in Phoenix, he recently retired from Honeywell after 35 years. Over the past decade, he was principally involved with engine ice crystal icing research, testing, and computer modeling. His work has contributed to aviation safety, and he's one of many hardworking engineers you can thank for those fun safety bulletins you've read on the subject over the years. <laughs> well, thank you, Marcus's dad. Did he mention his dad's name? Wolfgang. Uh, Wolfgang. Wolfgang, yeah. Okay, thanks. Um, and it says, thanks for all the hard work and enjoyable listening. Marcus, and he is uh, an Atlanta-based 7ER co-pilot, a 767 um category um and i think he was deadheading to houston hobby to do a uh, nba charter from hobby i think back to atlanta or something so anyway so very nice meeting you marcus thanks for the note um thanks for your comment about my pretty good landing in houston critique yeah my critique. now there's two of you with uh now there's two of you with that uh, lower back pain wow yeah, yeah, you're right. No, I'm just kidding. Hey, I'm just, I'm wondering if if uh, if uh, Marcus's dad knows Kaya because Kaya used to work uh, at the engine division in Honeywell in, uh, oh. in Phoenix. Yeah, so quite it's possible. A small world. Yeah, We're yeah. Very, probably very not possible. a heck of a lot of Wolfgangs there. So no, no, you no. I think uh, I think uh, I think that name would stand out. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I'll ask her. All right. Very good. Um, so this trip has been interesting. Uh, if, uh, you're in the U.S. and have been paying attention to the weather, especially if you live in the southeast. Steph has mentioned it a couple of times here that there's a weather system heading her way. Well, that weather system caused havoc uh, in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama, a little bit of Tennessee as well, with a lot of tornadic activity. And uh, on the next day after the Houston layover, we basically skirted the Gulf Coast and stayed south of all the um, weather systems at that point. It was early in the day. Got into Atlanta and got back out of Atlanta and up to Buffalo before uh, things started happening in the, in the Atlanta area. But I knew that it was just a matter of time before the system moved its way to the east and was going to impact the Atlanta area. And I thought, hmm, looks like it's going to be perfect timing. It's going to arrive in Atlanta the morning, early morning uh, today. Uh, this morning, but you know what? It turned out it wasn't that bad. I mean, it was stormy and it was bumpy, but it wasn't really as bad as I thought it was going to be. So it, all in all, it uh, turned out to be a, a pretty good day. And I've kind of lucked out when it comes to timing and the weather and everything else on this trip. So, um, yeah, that's uh, about it for the trip. I tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm loving this West Coast flying. Oh, yeah. man. I mean, yeah, the weather out there Santa is, yeah. uh, it's just, just gorgeous. I could just, you know. Right. Do this over and over and over. I do remember, you know, when I was flying the 727 as a first officer back in the 90s, a lot of my trips headed out west, and uh, the flying out there is just wonderful. And the weather is 
nothing like it is in the eastern U.S., yeah. especially this yeah, time of yeah, year. The yeah. southeast, yeah. Yeah, the southeast uh, in particular. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, um, so it's been a good trip. The co-pilot I flew with a bunch on the uh, Mad Dog, and uh, he's a really great guy. So I'm enjoying that as well. And um, let's see, next week I don't have a trip scheduled, uh, depending on my health situation. Uh, I may try to pick up some extra flying. And then the week after that, um, vacation. So uh, that is it for me. And I don't think I put anything else in our notes um, for me to talk about today. Okay. Um, Yeah. So I'm feeling much better, um, much more healthy, and I'm back flying again, and uh, I'm enjoying it. So, so this isn't going to happen, right? Yes, the uh, <laughs> Liz says. So this is not going to happen, right? Yes, that's a well. See, that would happen to somebody else, not me. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All the people with that hard landing. You'd be landing. the dealer in that case. <laughs> oh yeah, she said that uh, that hard landing basically put that airplane out of service. Yeah, that's sad. Um, yeah. All right. Yeah, but it fixed your back. Yeah, there you that's go. true. Like a, <laughs> Maybe that's why my back feels. Chiropractic adjustment. <laughs> okay, very good. All right. Um, well, if uh, you guys uh, want to keep moving forward, we could uh, start doing some fund, feedback. Coffee fund. Oh, coffee no, fund. Oh, no, no. Thank you, Liz. Fund. Thank goodness you're here to remind me that we need to talk about the coffee fund. So let me press this button here. Ah. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right. Coffee Fund, that's your way to support our show financially. Lots of ways to support our show. Just being part of our community, listening, telling other people about the show. That's one great way to be a supporter. Uh, But uh, some of you may have a couple uh, shekels rattling around in your uh, pocket or extra cash somewhere that you might want to uh, contribute to our show financially. And uh, a couple different ways to do that. We call it the Coffee Fund. Um, One of the ways is the Coffee Fund Classic Method, which is uh, using PayPal as a donation mechanism. You can do a one-time donation or a recurring uh, donation, whatever you want. And since the last episode, a couple of folks used the Coffee Fund Classic Method. We have Chris Eidsvik and Jenny Parkinson. So, yes, in Rome. And I think Chris, I'm not sure if he's in Canada or not. I think he was one of the ones that uh, sent us that report regarding the uh, Canadian TSB. But anyway, regardless, thank you very much for using the Coffee Fund Classic method. Yes. And another way to contribute to the show is to become a patron of the show via Patreon. And since the last episode, we have a new executive producer, Marcus, the guy. You know the note that I just read? Thank you, Marcus. Maybe, I th- yeah, Wolfgang's son. I think he felt so bad about the comment he made about my landing. He thought, oh, I better become a patron. Maybe I'll make up for it. Guilt. So, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, Liz is telling me I should do hard landings more often. Maybe we'll get more patrons. <laughs> I don't think it works that way. Absolutely. Anyway, um, thank you, Marcus, for becoming a patron of the show. 
And if you're interested in joining this wonderful group of folks um, want to contribute to the coffee fund, you can learn more about it by heading over to airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee. All right. Captain, incoming message. So let's start off with some feedback from Tim. Hi, Captains Jeff, Nick, Rick, Dr. Steph, and Liz. Feel free to share as much or as little of this as you feel is appropriate. It's not all sunshine and roses in this one. I'll trust your judgment. And then he put in parentheses, I should know better than that. I know. <laughs> Laugh out loud. That's true. Yes. on you. But yeah, joke's on you. We're, we're going to use everything. He says, I've been thinking about sending this in for a while, possibly since meeting y'all in Oshkosh, but have always hesitated. Now, you'll remember uh, Nick uh, Tim Qualls uh, from Arkansas or Arkansas. Uh, Arkansas, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that place always <laughs> rings a bell with me. Uh, so anyway, yeah, we, uh, we got a chance to uh, meet up with Tim and talk with him quite a bit over at uh, Oshkosh back in 2019. Anyway, he says, I've suffered with depression almost all my life, I guess, and ended up having one attempt back in 2018. I don't remember if I told y'all in a previous feedback or not that I have had three hours of instruction in a 1948 Piper Cub. Leave it to me to start in a tail dragger, he says. Anyway, money uh, didn't... a good way to stop. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's pure flying right there. Anyway, money didn't take long to run out, so I've never gotten back to it knowing that I'll never do it for a living or be able to afford my own plane. But I did learn that flying is about the same as riding a motorcycle. Great therapy. Even now, when I do take a flight for anything, I just love the feeling of being in the air. Seems like all the worries get left bound on the earth when the wheels leave the ground. I've been thinking about going back and completing my training just to say I've accomplished it. My question is, do y'all know if I could pass an FAA medical with a diagnosis of depression? I'm not a meds for what that's worth. I'd like to actually get my certificate if possible. Either way, I may still go for lessons and at least solo to accomplish that much. For Captain Nick, have you ever heard of Nicholas Stephen Alchemade? Or Alchemade? I only know one story about him, and I thought maybe he'd make a great plain tale someday. If there's more to tell than the story I know. Uh, I don't want to say it here, though, just in case you decide it is a good story. I know I couldn't do it justice as well as you can. He served in World War II, so maybe you all served together. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, yes, Nick so was in uh, World War One. <laughs> yeah. I like it. <laughs> yeah, Tim. Uh, says, yep, Nick's never going to do that story now, Tim. You just blew it. <laughs> Um, anyway, you'll be glad to know I gave up my Fu Manchu and had to go back to a regular goatee. Okay. Um, thank you all for the great podcast. I look forward to each episode makes my one hour commute to my second job more enjoyable. And again, that's from Tim calls. So, um, anybody want to put in their two cents regarding depression? Yeah, and, and, I yeah. followed up on Tim's suggestion there. Mm -hmm. um, and although I knew the story, I couldn't associate the name with the story. Uh, and I found another um, few similar stories in a similar vein. So I think we could probably make that, um, you know, um, talk about three or four of these uh, interesting people in one 
plain tale and uh, I'm probably going to perhaps tackle it for my next one I think oh nice very nice so, listen in next week Tim so you weren't insulted enough to throw in no no, I'm always, I'm so desperate for suggestions, <laughs> good suggestions. He puts up with a lot. I will take any insult. <laughs> so, well, hey, thinking about, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, what what about the? Uh, I think the basically the real reason why he was writing us about the uh, depression thing. Uh, any suggestions? Yeah, it's definitely suggestions. So the best thing to do is consult with an aviation medical examiner on this because um, depression is kind of a broad topic there. Um, I know you mentioned you're not on medications, but um, it really depends on what the specific diagnosis is in terms of what needs to happen in order to be issued a medical. Um, sometimes it can just be issued straight away. Sometimes it needs some sort of special issuance. Sometimes they need more information. So um, the only way you're going to find out that for certain or find that out for certain is to consult with an aviation medical examiner. So um, if you're even thinking about flying or getting your certificate, go do that now, do that first, figure out what that would take to get that sorted. Um, and hopefully you don't run into too many barriers with it. Okay. And I was I actually thinking that, Nick was uh, going to chime in on this too a little bit, potentially. Yeah. I was going to mention that um, when I um, got diagnosed uh, with clinical depression, um, I had to go and see a professor of psychology. Psychology? I think that's what it was. Anyway, um, and that was quite expensive. So I'm hoping you don't have to go th jump through too many hoops uh, because, uh, you know, by the time I'd been through uh, a bit of treatment, uh, and most of which I had to pay for myself, uh, I didn't sort of fit within the normal company uh uh, medical uh, rules um it you know it, it'd take me six months and uh quite a bit of payment so i'm hoping that yours since you've um seem to be um in a stable situation uh albeit it's obviously a concern and it's not something to be treated lightly um i i had just developed it so obviously i had to go through a lot of assessment um and um yeah i I, I got my way back into flying without too much difficulty. And in fact, everybody I approached um, who uh, helped me through um, was just incredibly positive and, um, you know, very happy to uh, assure me that I would find my, get my medical back, I would get back into flying and uh, I wasn't to, to worry about that, just to concentrate on getting the chemistry in my uh, brain uh, back into onto an even keel, and then uh, you know life would return to normal. And lo and behold, it eventually did. So, fingers crossed for you. All right. Um, let's see. Lane Street in our live audience uh, says, "Sport pilot certificate." Um, does that? Is there any delineation or differentiation between getting a regular class three medical certificate and um, a sport they, pilot they certificate. would ask about that, and I haven't thought about those details yeah. for a long time, so I'm going to look them up real quick. Okay. Yeah, it should all be on part 67 but, there. Yeah, it's um, – but it has to do with kind of self-certification from a medical standpoint. Mm -hmm. You need a valid driver's license, and I forget mm -hmm. all the details that have to happen with it. Um, if you hang on for two seconds, I'll get all that information, okay. though. Oh, and Steph, I need to talk to you um, about – oh, 
I should have mentioned in the getting to know us segment, um, I finally did get that interview with the uh, guy, Paul uh, Nyhart uh, from Icon Aviation. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was mm-hmm. Monday, right before my doctor's sure. appointment. And uh, that went really well, I think. So I'll let you know when uh, that's published. And um, on, let's see, tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow evening, um, I'm being interviewed for another um, show, which is not really an aviation podcast. It's a show where a couple guys get together and they try to talk one into an, uh, the other one into doing something. Hear and in me this out. Case, they're uh, hear me out. Thank you, uh, Liz. Um, and uh, they're going to one of the guys is going to try to talk to the other one or convince them that they need to get their pilot licenses or pilot certificates. And uh, so I need to talk to Steph to kind of get all the information I can about how much it's going to cost and, you know, different ways to do it and motivations and that kind of thing. So um, remind me to do that. That should be fun. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. So anywho. Yeah. So any luck yet? Yeah, there's, there's, so there's difference between basic med and I think the sport pilot um, rule. So, okay. um, sport pilot allows pilot to fly light sport aircraft without the need for FAA medical certificate. However, must hold a current invalid U.S. driver's license. Um, and there's a couple other things about having been um, found eligible for the issuance of at least a third class medical certificate at the time of his or her most recent application, if the person applied for a medical certificate, not have had a a recently issued medical certificate revoked or suspended um, or not know of any reason or any medical condition that would make the person unable to operate a light sport aircraft in a safe manner. And then Uh, there was the more recent. Yeah. I was going to say that might be a problem for Tim. I've seen the way he drives and I'm pretty Mm. sure he's, there's no way that he could have a driver's license. (laughs) Uh, Well, I know a guy that uh, can get you an idea. (laughs) (laughs) Basic med (laughs) is an alternate way for pilots to fly without holding an FAA medical so long as they meet certain requirements. Mm -hmm. There's a whole checklist here. Um, So you get a physical exam with a state licensed physician, then you complete an online medical course um, and go from there. There are some um, things that do require special issuance, and one of those are – Categories is mental health disorder, um, limited to established medical history, clinical diagnosis of personality disorders, psychosis, bipolar disorder, substance dependence, a um, couple other things in there as well. So there's a couple different avenues um, if you don't want to, uh, if, if the type of flying that you're doing does not require a um, formal uh, first, second, or third class medical certificate. Okay. Well, that might be... A way for Tim to get started to move forward. So it doesn't look like all the doors so you, are slammed. You just want to experience getting into the air and having yeah. some fun. Ultralights mm-hmm. are a fantastic way to go. Oh, good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, Tim, I hope that helped. Um, let us know uh, what you end up doing because we uh, would love to hear about it. All right. Uh, feedback two, which is actually feedback three. Um, this is from Chris Cheatwood, uh, or he sometimes calls himself the guru. Um, he sent a link to a YouTube video and, uh, let's see, I sh- I'm going to try to play this and we can discuss this, but it was an event regarding, um, an airplane taking off from Orlando executive and, uh, looks like this particular person busted the Bravo. Look at this tower. This is 
114 Foxtrot Alpha, uh, holding short at runway 25, ready for takeoff. Number 4 Foxtrot Alpha, runway 25 Alpha 2, clear for takeoff, fly westbound. 114 Foxtrot Alpha, uh, fly leftbound, runway approved, clear. Orlando Executive Tower, Mooney 1142 Lima, approaching Mary B for the ILS runway 25. Mooney 1142 Lima, Orlando Executive Tower, your number two, following a Skyhawk in the downwind, runway 25, clear to land. Number two, clear to land, runway 25, 1142 Lima. Number zero, Mike Alpha, number one, inside of a Mooney on a six mile straight, and 25, clear, touch and go. Clear, touch and go, zero, Mike Alpha. Number 770, remain outside the Bravo, frequency change crew. November 4, Fox Strat Alpha, remain outside the Bravo frequency changes. Actually, November 4, Fox Strat Alpha, it looks like you turned south there in the Bravo, sir. I need you to descend immediately uh, at or below 800. I told you to fly westbound. Hello? Number 4, Fox Strat Alpha, exec tower. Hello? Skyhawk 114, Fox Strat Alpha, exec tower. Skyhawk 4, Foxtrot Alpha, Exec Tower, you are in the Bravo, sir. I need you to exit the Bravo. Tower, good afternoon. Skyline 146, Fox is uh, 1,600 visual for uh, 25. November 4, Foxtrot Alpha, how do you hear? If you can hear this transmission, I dent. Number 4, Foxtrot Alpha. Mooney, uh, 421, you might see traffic there off your left. I'm not sure what they're doing. They're not responding to me and going in the wrong direction, but uh, but uh, just use caution there. They're above you. Yeah, I, I see him. It looks like he's uh, going south. All right, November 4, Foxtrot Alpha, Exec Tower. If you can hear me, sir, I need you to turn left northbound immediately and descend. You're uh, in the Bravo at 1,600. Tower, Skyline 146, Foxtrot is... Uh just west of the field, 1,500. Number 146, Foxtrot, Exec Tower, continue inbound for a ride down one runway 25. Right down one runway 25, 146, Fox. Number 4, Foxtrot, Alpha, Exec Tower. Number 0, Mike Alpha, you're clear touch and go, runway 25. Runway 25, clear touch and go, 0, Mike Alpha. Are you able to hear any transmissions from 4, Foxtrot, Alpha? Uh, that would be a negative, sir, 0, Mike Alpha. Okay, but you can hear me loud and clear, obviously. Yeah. Uh, five by five, sir. All right. He's putting on an air show there in the Bravo shelf, and he's not <laughs> responding to me, so I'm trying to uh, to figure out what his train of thought is there. Copy that. Number four, six, uh, Foxtrot. Just extend your downwind for a minute here. I got an aircraft that may be lost or uh, disoriented there just south of the field, and we're trying to get them back on frequency here. So uh, just continue the downwind until uh, maybe I can figure that part out. Four, six, Foxtrot. We'll call. Number 114, Foxtrot Alpha, Exec Tower. Number 46, Foxtrot, you can turn base, you're clear to land. Clear to land, 1465. November 114, Foxtrot Alpha, Exec Tower. November 114, Foxtrot Alpha, frequency change approved. Number 114, Foxtrot Alpha, negative, <laughs> sir, you can't just walk away from me like that. Well, I got more to talk to you about. Huh? <laughs> Number 4, Foxtrot Alpha, Exec Tower. November 114, Fox Alpha, having problems with my radio. Give me a second, trying to fix it. Oh, yes, yeah. Sir, I understand that. So, do you need any assistance? <laughs> it's my radio. November 114, Fox Alpha, repeat that again. 
Do you need assistance, sir? You just uh, you just dusted the Bravo shelf at seventeen hundred, and uh, I was trying to get a hold of you for the last ten flying miles. I need to know if you're all right out there. November one one four, Foxtrot Alpha. Yeah, I've just been working on my radio. I apologize about that. Um, I'm everything is all right right now, but thank you. All right, I need you to give me a call so here. When you where are you headed today? I'm heading to Brooksville, KB, K Bravo. Kilo, Victor. Number four, five, shut out for Roger. I need, I need you to write down a number when you have a second, okay? November one one four, five, shut alpha. Go ahead. Number four, five, shut alpha. Possible pilot deviation. I need you to contact Orlando Executive Tower on area code four zero seven. November one one four, five, shut alpha. I got. Eight six seven five three. Yeah, just give us a call. I just want to talk to you and see what happened because I understand your radio's out, but you took a hard left turn and climbed into that delta. We just need to talk about that, sir. Okay, you just get to your destination safe and give us a call so we can just talk about it. All right. November one one four Fox Alpha. Yeah, I'll give them a call and I'll speak to them about it. Thank you. <laughs> All right, sir. Have a good flight. One one four Fox Alpha. Roger that. <laughs> Number zero, Mike Alpha, are you, I'm sorry, you can turn base. If I extended you, I apologize. You can turn base. You didn't extend me. I just kept going. I know you're dealing with that. Nope. Turning the base. I appreciate it. Yeah, just turn it into the numbers here, and uh, we'll uh, we'll get you on the ground here for a touch and go. Uh, you are number one. Clear touch and go. No problem, sir. Zero, Mike Alpha, heading into the numbers. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, he uh, <laughs> he was giving us a little bit of issue there. I don't, that was more than a radio issue. I believe so. <laughs> I believe so. I'm not a pilot, but I don't know why the radio went out and he decided to fly south into the Bravo. That didn't seem like the best plan. I just want to let him know. Copy that. I appreciate your help there. Number zero, Mike Alf, you are clear to land. Uh, or clear, correction, clear, touch and go. Clear, touch and go, runway 25670, Mike Alf. Well, everybody knows that if you have a radio problem, you turn south and just fly south. As long as you don't fly west. all airspace in your area (laughs) while you're dealing with your radio problem. Fly south with the geese. They all have, they have no radios, so that makes a lot of sense. So I think this whole thing stems from, and we talk about this all the time, communication. And I think that right at the beginning of this, there was a major piece of miscommunication or misunderstanding. The tower controller sort of mumbled like fly westbound, uh, but the pilot kind of sounds almost like a student pilot or somebody with not a lot of experience, um, interpreted it as fly leftbound. Now, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. leftbound, that's mm-hmm. what he said. And so it looked really... like, oh, okay, he wants me to turn left and enter a left pattern maybe, or I don't know. Um, but I think that's yeah. what happened, and then it just... They'll have a little chat yeah. about and figure <laughs> out. And... They're here to help. Oh, yeah. Help us help you. <laughs> no, this is uh, this is this is where I learned how to fly. I actually, uh, oh. I did my um, my uh, my oh, schooling so up in Sanford, which is just north of that, and uh, and my uh, instrument rating uh, just so happened that the day of my of my check ride, the winds were blowing out of the west, and I don't know if they still have it, but at the time, uh, runway two five had a back course um, mm. uh, approach. 
And so that was uh, that added a, a a layer of complexity to the check rate because if if you bust that particular procedure, you can't be checked off until you fly that particular procedure again and and, and do it within you know practical test standards. And uh, you know West Operations that uh, executive you know don't happen that often, so <laughs> I was like, man, you better get this right because otherwise. Uh, yeah, might be might be a little while before you get checked out, but uh, yeah, it's it's uh, very congested airspace. A lot of um, a lot of flight schools in the area. You got um, you got uh, Kissimmee around there, Sanford, obviously. You have uh, Orlando Executive, and you have uh, tons and tons of little you know satellite airports all the way around there, and, and a big airport. A big, and a big airport, MCO McCoy, is right there, right? And so uh, and so uh, it's uh, it's you have to you have to have your wits about. You have to have you know, you know a good situational awareness so so that stuff like this doesn't happen. And and, and during training, they I mean they they drill into your head, you know, the Bravo shelf, the Bravo shelf, the Bravo shelf. So you always have that, uh, you know, in in the back of your mind there. And so um, or you should, but like but but I, I agree with you in that uh, this this particular fellow. Uh, seems to have been uh, a little bit, uh, a little bit lost, not only situationally, but in the, uh, you know, with the with the back and forth and the radio, uh, the radio work. So uh, interesting. I, I was I was actually uh, surprised he didn't, uh, you know, when, when the guy was getting him in his number, he said, "Well, you know, actually, I'm I'm a little busy later, so uh, I appreciate the, uh, I appreciate the invitation, but uh, you know, I got to go to." Uh, nah, I got plans. I don't think I'm yeah, gonna I have got, time. I got plans later. Uh, you're not you're not my type. Um, so uh, yeah. Liz says that uh, she thinks that you're probably very familiar with that telephone number, Rick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on speed dial. Number one, actually. I guess. Well, what is it? One eight hundred. I'm a bad boy. What was it? I think I saw I think it. Yeah, five, I'm, a, I'm a bad boy. Yeah, yeah, five five five. I'm a bad boy. I'm a bad boy. Yeah. Anyway, well, I mean, what else to say there? Obviously, somebody that doesn't have a lot of experience, a little bit of confusion. Maybe nervous flyer, whatever, you know, nervous pilot. And then you hear something you thought they said left bound and then, okay, going to have to figure out, I'm going to make something up here. What left bound is instead of saying, I mean, maybe that's a fancy pilot term left bound. I haven't come across that before, but left down. I know left. (laughs) I don't know. Actually, that's what I thought he came back with. I didn't hear left bound. I thought he said left downwind. So I don't know. Okay. Mm, no, I heard, uh, I heard left the down. only other I thing like, I would ask you guys, because I'm not that this familiar with the casual way that you guys run your airports. Um, <laughs> um, was it appropriate have a conversation with the other pilots that were on his frequency about whether he was justified on what had just gone on? Shouldn't he be a little bit more um, ripe up with that? That's that's done and dusted. Do I actually need to now talk to a couple of other guys and say, well, I, yeah, I, this guy was doing this, that, and the other, and and I didn't like the way he did that. So yeah, blah, blah, and I'm going, really? Um, you know, is that is that absolutely necessary? So is this what happens normally? Oh yeah, every day. Mm. Okay, no, fair all enough. the time. This is not what happens. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man, uh, I don't know what to tell you there, Nick. But I, I, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah. Rick makes the point that a leftbound is a three hundred and ninety degree heading. There you go. <laughs> so turn left. Oh, that's a good heading. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh boy. Anyway, well, thank you, Chris, for sending that in and make us get a chuckle. All right, let's move on to the next 
in our feedback lists from Joe S. He says, first time feedback from a long time listener. Hey, APG crew, long time listener, first time poster. Love the show, Jeff. The 717 is awesome. I have about 3,500 hours in it when I flew for Air Tran. Anyway, Ooh. love the show and the humor from all. Take care, Joe. What does it mean, humor? We're completely serious on this show, Joe. Come on. Very serious. And he spelt it wrong as this well. This is old business over here. There's a U in humor. humor. No. There is. At the very U's. beginning, H-U. Yep, there it is. Two U's. <laughs> no, no. No, 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 no. U-U. No, no. U-U, that's a W. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and this W in humor. <laughs> hey, Joe, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to uh, send us a little bit of feedback. And yeah, the 717 is awesome. I'm, I'm learning to appreciate it every day I fly it. So 3,500 hours, that's a lot of time. I know, the 717. I saw a bunch of them over at the, uh, at the uh, Maui airport. I oh, yeah, that's Hawaiian right. Uses Hawaiian them a lot flies for, this, right? For, yeah. For island hopping. Yeah. For island. Yeah. Now, speaking of that, maybe we'll have this in a news story um, in a future episode, but uh, it just reminded me of a story in the news about a 717, a Qantas uh, 717 co-pilot uh, yes. suing nice. the airline. Nice uh, maybe it's one of their, um, uh, lo- the like a the feeder carriers Regional. or something like Regional. that. No, it's called uh, Airlink. Airlink? Okay. Airlink? Yeah, well, apparently they were flying a 717 somewhere between, I don't know, Adelaide and Darwin, I don't know, somewhere out there in Australia. And uh, one of the engines exploded, blew up, kind of like the United thing. And uh, this first officer apparently got some PTSD from the whole situation and uh, now is suing the airline for PTSD and all this other stuff. So, again, I think we'll... Well, Liz, did that? Yep. Is that it's something that's going to be in? Oh. Yep, staging, staging. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's already in our staging uh, notebook. That means we're going to talk about it on the next show. So, just pretend I didn't say anything about it. Act okay. surprised, everybody. Act surprised when we start talking this about is what it. What you next. sign up for? Uh, it just, it just, it happens I know. To you. Just deal with it. <laughs> yes. Safe space in a snow cone or something. Yeah, snowflake bad. pilots. I know. I was pretty amazed when I saw that. Anyway, let's move on. Um, this is a story that maybe Steph, you'll be interested in, um, as well as other people who are into space travel and stuff that they send up to Mars. Um, looks like this is from Alan. He says, Liz and crew, I thought this may be of interest, and especially to those who throw people out of aircraft. Laugh out loud. All the very best, Alan. And um, so this is a link to an article entitled, uh, this is from uh, telegraph.co.uk, Web Puzzlers Crack Code Hidden in Rover Parachute. Um, The mismatching red and white stripes of the Perseverance rover's canopy alerted armchair space experts watching the footage to the hidden message. Uh, Let's see, scientists at NASA hit a secret message in the supersonic parachute they used to land in um, a car-sized rover on Mars. Video beamed back to Earth showed the Perseverance rover touching down on the red planet, including a view of the underside of the canopy. The fabric, which was made by a British company, ah, there you go, uh, had an unusual red and white design, which 
set armchair space experts communicating on the internet, wondering if there was a hidden meaning. So uh, apparently, uh, deciphering the message involved uh, translating the colors of the parachute into binary code and then letters. It emerged that each ring in the canopy spelled out a word. The full message read, Dare Mighty Things, the motto of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California, where mission control was. The edge of the canopy, once decoded, showed a set of numbers representing mission control's coordinates. Adam Steltzner, Perseverance's chief engineer, confirmed the riddle had been solved. It looks like the Internet has cracked the code in something like six hours. Oh, Internet, is there anything you can't do? He wrote on social media. Uh, The mismatching red and white stripes were the first clue. Puzzle solvers then converted them into binary code. Ones for red, knots for white. The ones and knots were then separated into groups of 10, and each of those sections had 64 added to it. Each final number was made into a letter using the American Standard Code for Information Exchange, or Interchange, which represents text in computers. Uh, Tiverton-based textiles company Heathcote Fabrics, which made the parachute, last night revealed even it was unaware NASA was created creating a coded message within the design. Peter Hill, director of Heathcote's woven fabric department, said he knew that there was something weird about the parachute the moment he saw the video from Mars. He told the Daily Telegraph, I didn't know about the code. As soon as it opened, I thought, there's something funny here, and started asking questions. It was really Hang weird. On a minute. He, he made the damn parachute. I know. You mean, uh-huh. <laughs> you mean he didn't notice it when he we was very making it? very specific color requirements. Really doesn't see very well, Nick. <laughs> so NASA really That's just right. likes red and white and uh-huh. things that are not overly symmetric. Well, okay. they, they come patterns. from the West Country down there, and they're not always smart, as you'd like to think. <laughs> okay. If you're offended by this. Uh, <laughs> Nick offends me at AirlinePilotGuy.com. Although, I guess I'm just not that smart, because I just would have looked at him and been like, oh, cool parachute. Yeah, I did the same thing. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought. Of. <laughs> okay, it's kind of weird. I just, you know what, I just... Tip me off to end there being a sort of yeah. I just can't believe that there's message. people out there. They're like, ooh, look at that. There's a secret hidden message in this. Yeah, and, and yeah, then they're yeah, right. Yeah. And NASA's like, yes. And just people out there. They're you know they're just another level. You know, it's um mm-hmm. yeah. Interesting my, stuff. my hat to you. That is brilliant. Yeah. I yeah. love it. Well, the Dare Mighty Things motto comes from a speech by Theodore Roosevelt in 1899, a few years before he became U.S. president. He spoke of the doctrine of the strenuous life and urged Americans to not shrink from danger. He said, far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much. Sounds Uh, like our show. (laughs) Really? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Although a lot of people that do watch uh, do suffer quite a bit, actually, I think. Yeah, checkered by failure. Whose failure? Ours or theirs? Okay. <laughs> well, I'm getting a um, control room is contacting me, giving me a direct message, and uh, she is saying that it is just about time now for this week's installment of the old pilot's plain tales. And this week's version is entitled The Coupang Gang. Nope. The Coupang Kid. Here we go. Take it away, old pilot. 
The Young Pilot's Plane Tales, The Coupang Kit The landing gear or undercarriage of a big airliner is a massive and powerful system. Designed to support an aircraft that can weigh several hundred tons, it must not only carry the machine around the airfield whilst it taxis from one place to another, but it must be able to withstand the shock of landing. On a normal day, the gear of an aircraft like the Boeing 747-400 will happily cope with a landing weight of over 650,000 pounds, that's nearly 300 tonnes, whilst being dropped onto the runway at up to 10 feet per second. A normal landing would be only 2 to 3 feet per second. It's also capable of landing in an emergency at much higher weights, around 875,000 pounds, nearly 400 tonnes, so long as the landing is kept to a maximum of 6 feet per second. Carrying the aircraft's weight at touchdown is only part of the job, though. The gear will have to cope with extreme stresses fore and aft during braking, particularly if it's a rejected takeoff at maximum takeoff weight. Side forces during a crosswind landing and twisting forces as the pilot puts his massive aircraft down at speeds akin to a Formula One racing car tearing down a straight. The gear can cope partly because the weight of the airliner is spread across several sets of wheels each securely fastened with a robust mounting system of struts and axles, each with powerful multi-disc brakes. The individual weight of this complex assembly will be around 6,500 pounds, around 3 tonnes, which, since there are four main gear assemblies on the 747, adds up to something like 26,000 pounds, 12 tonnes of weight. Building such a monster set of wheels would be hard enough, but this particular system must be able to disappear into the wings and fuselage, leaving a smooth and streamlined surface that shows no sign of the vast and complex undercarriage hidden from view. Accomplishing this magic trick thousands upon thousands of times a day as airliners around the world clean up after takeoff and drop the gear before landing would be enough to make the likes of Harry Houdini blanche. At the risk of revealing the method behind the trick, the number of different designs are manifold and go from a simple hinging upwards to a complex shrinking, twisting and folding that might defeat an origami expert in order to fit into as small a space as possible within the airframe. Moving the gear up and down is, of course, only part of the problem. The whole kit and caboodle has to be neatly covered by a complex jigsaw of doors, most of which are only opened when the gear is in transit. Everything is powered by high-pressure hydraulic rams which work with enormous force, particularly when you have to swing tons of gleaming high-tensile steel, hot brakes and heavily reinforced tyres filled to 14 times atmospheric pressure around. The undercarriage bays that house the retracted gear are small and crowded with the pipes and wiring that feed the hydraulic cylinders and the complex electrical control systems that move the assemblies, their locking latches and brakes. 
Unlike the comfortable aircraft cabin, these bays are unpressurized and unheated, so at the high altitudes airliners cruise at, they will only be filled with the thin and freezing air that exists in the stratosphere, where temperatures can reach below minus 70 degrees centigrade, that's minus 94 degrees Fahrenheit. Even on a warm day, the temperature won't be much above minus 40 Mountaineers refer to the heights above 26,000 feet as the death zone, a region where it is believed that no human body can acclimatise. The partial pressure of oxygen there is insufficient to sustain human life for an extended period. The FAA indicate that, at this height, the time of useful consciousness is only around three to five minutes. The normal cruise altitude of an airliner will often be around 10,000 feet higher, where the time lowers to as little as 30 seconds. Faced with these conditions, the body will generally suffer an appalling list of dangerous symptoms, which include dizziness, breathlessness, headaches, vomiting, body pain, blistering and purpling of the hands and feet, swelling of the brain and fluid accumulation in the lungs, although some of these effects will occur after unconsciousness. The ultimate symptom will be heart failure, leading to death. Cold is another killer. A reduction of body core temperature by only one and a half degrees is the start, and if the situation isn't resolved, the heart rate, breathing rate and blood pressure will all increase as the body tries to compensate. There will be a change of mental state with amnesia, confusion and a loss of fine motor skill. And if the situation continues, the initial response will be reversed as the body starts to shut down. At the sort of temperatures found in the wheel wells of an airliner, Freezing and destruction of the body's tissue will occur, most of which will be irreversible. Death will ultimately follow. Stowaways have been trying to obtain free passage on ships for millennia, although the term as applied to people only stretches back to 1794 and the King of Spain's Polizon denomination. From 1843 onwards, the term could be found in the Convention of International Maritime Traffic, which states that they are a person who is secreted on a ship without the consent of the ship owners or the master. The fate of such interlopers can be tragic, as is found in the story of the Greenock Stowaways. Six boys, aged between 11 and 16 and a young man of 22, hid on the cargo ship Arran, sailing from Scotland to Quebec in 1868. Once discovered, they were cruelly treated, lashed, beaten, starved, sometimes stripped naked and doused with ice-cold seawater. They were horribly ill-treated and even tortured. When the ship became ice-bound, despite their lack of proper clothing or shoes, the captain ordered that six of them be put onto the ice to trek to the distant shore in their bare feet. Two of the youngest died on the ice, but the rest, snow-blind and with lacerated feet, were discovered by local Newfoundlanders and rescued. 
In modern times, stowaways, as you may have surmised by now, have frequently attempted to hide within the undercarriage wheel wells of airliners. The chances of surviving such an ordeal are remote in the extreme as the hazards are many. If someone attempting such a dangerous journey isn't crushed by the movement of the gear as it stows or fall to their death when the undercarriage doors open to raise or lower the gear, then the environment will present an almost insurmountable hazard. A little incomplete record of stowaways who have attempted this incredibly risky venture shows a fairly constant stream since the mid-40s, totalling at least 98. Survival in the early days was a little more likely, since those airliners flew lower and the journeys were shorter, but in the days of jet travel, the chance of death has become more certain. For some, this terrifying ordeal ended quite quickly when the floor of their hiding place turned out to be an undercarriage door which opened beneath them as the pilots raised the gear after takeoff. Some were crushed, but the vast majority died during the high-level flight when the extreme conditions overcame them and their bodies frequently fell from their hiding place when the gear was lowered for landing. There are, however, a few remarkable stories of survival. Juan Carlos Guzman Betancourt was a career criminal thought to have stolen over $1 million in various countries from Canada to Japan. In 1993, the 17-year-old flew in the wheel well of a Douglas DC-8 from Bogota to Miami, and apart from some frostbite, he arrived quite fit. He was found standing on the runway of Miami Airport, claiming to be a 13-year-old orphan who had clung to the undercarriage of the aircraft. That unlikely story generated an outpouring of sympathy and gifts from generous Americans, and tens of thousands of dollars in donations flowed into a support fund. After he fled with the cash, it emerged that Guzman Betancourt was actually 17 years old with two healthy parents. He was convicted of theft and fraud in several countries, but frequently escaped or was extradited only to con money from new victims. A more deserving survivor was a Cuban refugee named Victor Alvarez Molina. In 2003, he made it to Montreal in the wheel well of a DC-10 after enduring four hours in temperatures that dropped below minus 40. His saving grace was a leak in an air conditioning pipe which seeped warm air into his hiding place. The pipe also gave him a grab handle to hold on to when the landing gear deployed. Molina stumbled onto the tarmac of Duval Airport, exhausted, hypothermic and unable to speak. The Canadians showed him their kindness when he was granted refugee status and allowed to stay. Last we heard, he got a job as a mechanic and was taking French lessons, whilst he dreamed of bringing his family to Canada to join him. The world's very first undercarriage stowaway that we have records of tells us about a young Indonesian boy called Bazwi. 
He had grown up as an orphan who survived the Japanese occupation of Timor during the Second World War. The island lies about 400 miles, around 650 kilometres, northwest of Darwin, the capital town of Australia's Northern Territories. Following the surrender of the Allied forces from Britain, Australia and the Dutch East India Company to the Japanese, a contingent of several hundred Australian commandos, aided by the locals, continued to wage a six-month guerrilla war, inflicting heavy casualties on the Japanese forces. Eventually, the Australians were forced to evacuate, leaving the Timorese to face the Japanese alone. Bravely, they continued to resist, but paid a heavy price, and tens of thousands of Timorese civilians died as a result of the Japanese occupation. Baz Wee worked in the kitchens at Kupang Airport for food, but it wasn't a happy life, as he was often beaten and abused. He remembered the Australians' liberation of Timor during the war and their kindness as they offered him bully beef and sweets and gave him rides in their trucks. He watched the aircraft come and go from the rough airport and when, in August 1946, he heard that a Dutch Air Force C-47 that had recently landed was heading next to Darwin, the 12-year-old decided to escape. He crept up to the airliner, but the cabin door was locked, so he looked for another way in. Clambering up onto one of the big tyres, he peered inside the spacious wheel well, and he thought he could hide there, so he climbed up. Undiscovered, he waited in the dark interior while the crew and passengers boarded, and then, with a belch of unburnt fuel and smoky exhaust, the big Pratt & Whitney twin wasp engine started. Lying only a few feet from the 14-cylinder engines, the noise and vibration must have been unbearable, but he held his nerve and clung on as the aircraft began to rumble along the taxi. It didn't take long before the 11-ton machine began to bounce its way down the runway, getting faster and faster before smoothly easing away as it climbed into the sky. Then, with a loud screech, the hydraulic piston started to move, retracting the spinning wheel below him, and it began to rise into his hiding place. Buffeted by the slipstream, he scrambled back out of the way into a tiny space, only ten inches deep and twenty inches high, between a fuel tank and the searing hot engine exhaust. The tyre ground against his back, tearing the skin from his shoulder blade, and he lay bleeding, fighting back his panic. Unable to move, he was trapped against the exhaust that was baking him on one side, whilst the freezing cold air blown by the big propeller froze the other. Mercifully, Bazwi fell unconscious. For three hours he lay wedged in between the struts of the engine nacelle until the C-47 lined up on the main runway at Darwin and lowered its gear. Still unconscious, it was pure luck that the skinny boy stayed in place during the landing until, whilst putting the wheel chocks in, the ground crew saw him hanging there close to death. 
for three months. The doctors and nurses in the Darwin Hospital treated his burns and lacerations, and all the time the newspapers were writing stories about his remarkable survival, calling him the Kupang Kid. At the time, the Australian people were shocked and amazed that this brave little boy had gone through so much to try to get to Australia. There was a wave of affection for Baz Wee and all that he had gone through, losing his parents, suffering through the Japanese occupation, and then escaping to try and find a new life with the only people who had ever shown him kindness. He was taken in by the administrator of the Northern Territories, whilst word was sent to Government House in Canberra. In the meantime, Baz was sent to school, and he turned out to be an excellent student, getting on socially and growing into a much-loved member of the community. However, there was a major hurdle to overcome. At the time, because Australia had a whites-only immigration policy, he shouldn't have been allowed to stay, and there were people who thought it dangerous to create a precedent by circumventing the law. They argued that they might be inundated with undesirable migrants if they allowed Bazoui to stay. The Minister for Immigration, Mr Colwell, gave the case special consideration, and because of his circumstances as an orphan and a minor, Bazoui was allowed to stay. Indeed, a Darwin couple agreed to adopt him. Twelve years after his arrival, the Kupang kid was naturalised. He got a job at the Commonwealth Works Department, and when he turned 24, Baz Wee met a pretty young white girl from Perth. After a year-long courtship, the two were married in the Roman Catholic Church, where Baz Wee had once served as an altar boy. They went on to raise a family of five children. When asked by his kids about the large scar on his back, his daughter said that her father would tell them it was where a big butterfly had landed, and not that it was from the plane's exhaust pipe. After a long and happy life in the country he loved and that had adopted him, the Kupang kid finally passed away in 2016, at the age of 80. Another great one. I mean, yeah. I don't know. you keep cranking <laughs> those stuff. things out, Nick. You should keep uh, doing yourself there, Nick. That's uh, it's just not as time to go, apparently. You know, just uh, yeah. Things. I thought that was a sweet story, wasn't it? That that yeah. little kid rescued out of that, uh, you know, the awful an orphan out of that awful situation in World War Two, mm-hmm. uh, and you uh, put that against the the horrible con man that went <laughs> <laughs> the thirteen year old orphan. Everyone. <laughs> yeah, and he carried on. I mean, he he had such a life of crime; it was just appalling. And he just went around the world. He was almost like you know, catch me if you can. That yeah, uh, character, yeah. he was apparently a smooth talking man who would uh, con you out of everything you owned. So, yeah, I thought that would diverse, but uh, you know, it it still happens. Uh, and the reason that the list is incomplete, uh, the fact that there may be a number of uh, attempts. Uh, and the bodies have never been discovered, so the attempt was never recorded because, you know, who would know? Uh, if it someone had tried to hide away, uh, fallen out over an ocean or something, um, or into a jungle or, you know, 
Uh, and no one ever knew. I mean, a couple of bodies landed in the middle of London. Mm. And like some poor lass was sunbathing in her back garden and this body plummeted from the sky and landed about a, a meter from her, a few feet from her. <laughs> so you go, whoa. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can try and get the word out there, folks. It's not a safe way to travel. <laughs> no, not very comfortable either. You know, especially when you have an yeah. exhaust manifold on your back burning the flesh off of you and <laughs> yes. you know, almost know. being crushed Tread. by the you know. gear mechanism. Yeah, yeah I know. It's Absolutely. the cost of the ticket. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they no, it, it, and as you were saying, it's a, just just the way these these uh these landing gear mechanisms just, just seem to fold and just completely disappear out of the way. It's just unbelievable the right, funny enough, that, Rick, it's always been one of my favorite parts of the airplane. You know, I, I, yeah. I, uh, when I do the walk around, I always look at it and go, you know, I, I know I've done this in ground school, but how the hell does this work? <laughs> I know, I know, it's, it's it's amazing. I mean, the seven forty seven, the uh, so the the so you have the wing gear and the body gear, right? So the wing gear, uh, those tilt to fifty seven degrees, so they can fit into the into the wheel well, and then the body gear tilts at thirteen degrees and actually rotates uh, along the uh, the longitudinal axis of the of the jet and just stows itself up there. So it's, it's just it's like it's like origami. It's, it's just it's what it is. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I mean the engineering behind all that I think is just so clever, and to build it in such a robust and reliable way, uh, because the number of actual undercarriage faults that big airliners have are uh, incredibly uh, uncommon. Yeah. It, it really is very, very rare. And, you know, I, I know of a couple of 747 incidents where one set of gears failed to uh, to drop, and you can even land it with just three of the four, can't you? So uh, You can, and, you can and land it with two out of the four. Landing. You can oh, land really? two out of the four. Yeah, <laughs> wow. absolutely, two out of the four. And and the, and the times that... Uh, uh, the I I know what I, I think I know what incident you're talking about, and that wasn't even a, that, that wasn't even a design issue. That was a, that was a maintenance issue that they. Uh, that, that was someone uh, I know Virgin had one. Yeah, uh, that's the, that's the, what I'm talking about. Yeah. British Airways had one as well. Um, yeah, yep, yep, yep. not you know, not that different in time. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. ever had a gear problem, Jeff? Uh, just the one where the gear wouldn't come up, and that was. Oh yeah, I yeah. remember that. You left the ground locks in, didn't you? Well, no, I didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> they were they were performing maintenance, and they were doing it with the hydraulic system and uh, the landing gear shutoff valve. I believe somebody left it not quite completely closed, and so it kind of bypassed the gear. So, I mean, it have was. Have you had a ever had a problem, uh, Rick? Uh, no, I, I, I've never have, uh, you know, like knock on wood for that. Uh, but, uh, I have been, uh, I was, I was deadheading once, um, and, uh, came time to put the landing gear up and you know, it was this, this, this weird sand I've never heard before. And, uh, like the, like the hydraulic rams are trying to, you know, retract the gear and nothing would happen. And then we kind of leveled off and was like, oh, this is kind of odd. And it uh, turns out that the, uh, the, the pins were still in. So that was, uh. <laughs> That was an interesting one. That's what everyone dreads when the gear won't come up. Yeah. Did you did you yeah. think that, Jeff? No, no I didn't because I, I I associated it with the maintenance working on the hydraulic system. So that ah. you know kind of gave me um you know the idea that it wasn't a gear pin that was still stuck in there. But uh 
I, uh, you know, if you're going to have a gear problem, that's the one to have. You just can't raise the gear and yeah, exactly. Jump. You got three yeah. green. Uh, we're good. Just bring it back around and yeah. land. You know, <clears throat> come back around and land. And uh, yeah, a, a couple of times I had hydraulic failures on the green system uh, on the Airbus, which is the system that lowers the gear. Hmm. Um, but in both cases, the system was clever enough to tell me I was losing fluid. So I uh, we secured the pump, uh, depressurized that hydraulic system, uh, and the leak stopped. Uh, so that's fine. And we didn't activate it again until it came time to put the gear down. And we both both times it happened, we had enough uh, fluid left to get the gear fully down, and then it ran out. Uh, uh, so we but both times we were stranded on the runway because we had no noticeable no steering. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, but you had enough to so, get the gear down, so that's good. Yeah. yeah, exactly right. So we didn't have to rely on the gravity drop system, which, of course, people may not realize, but there is another way of putting the gear yeah. down yeah. if the hydraulics fail. Uh, that's I did good have old, an incident. Uh, uh, God's, God's go ahead, G, sorry. Gra- gravity. Sorry, yes, go Yeah, gravity. So uh, my first flight as a captain on my own which was an ordeal um the last flight we lost the a system on the 727 um which i believe i think was the a or whatever we called it i don't remember now but you lost a system uh, well the (laughs) the hydraulic system responsible for lowering the landing gear and raising the landing gear and so we had to do a gravity um gear extension thing and no nose wheel steering and had to stop on the runway and have a tug come out there and hook up and drag us over to the gate. Um, but, uh, that was the only other. And then one time going into Dayton, lowered the gear handle on the mad dog and the, uh, one of the, we didn't get one of the green, uh, light indications and turns out it was just a light bulb. So we Ooh, replaced it. Right. And good one. to go. Yeah. No, so I've been, that, that, so. The gear on the seven four is so massive that you actually need two hydraulic systems to to, wow. to bring it up and down. Yeah. So. Oh, you guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. You got the. You <laughs> big, got the. That's your big that's, hydraulics. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's what she said. No, it, it's it's a lot of pumping ex- up. That's exactly what she said. <laughs> <laughs> no, and uh, and I, I, so the the other issue here with the uh, well, not issue, but the other uh, thing that comes to mind here with the gravity gravity gear extend is that remember that uh, that uh, lot seven six dash three hundred that had the yep. uh, center hydraulic uh, issue Landed coming Europe. out of uh, yep, and uh, it was I think it was from I was flying from I think it was Newark over to Warsaw, and mm-hmm. uh, they had a the exact same failure that happened to me. I lost the center hydraulic system coming out of um, um, South America on my way up to Brazil. Uh, to uh, Spain, um, and on the seven six landing gear uh, and nose gear steering, all that stuff is on the center hydraulic system because that's, that's the, the the big system. You have the two uh, demand pumps and the and the and the big uh, electric pump there. Uh, and so these guys apparently uh, the FO when he when he went to set his uh, his flight bag uh, flight kit down on his side he knocked out the uh, circuit breaker for the hot battery bus and the reason why that's important is because as as Nick mentioned earlier uh, the gravity uh, uh, drop when you when you have an issue with the center hydraulic system and you can't put the landing gear down normally all you really do is you just actuate this little switch. That electrically releases the the up locks, and then the gear just basically you know falls down by gravity. It's locked by what's called drag braces and side braces. So the aerodynamic uh, loads lo- uh, lock the uh, the landing gear in place. But this only works 
if the circuit breaker that <laughs> actuates the, the damn bus. lock is pushed in. <laughs> and so no, here come no these guys, you know, coming in and they land the thing. Uh, it was a beautiful landing, except that mm. the gear went down. You know, they come in, they land the thing. Those are national <laughs> heroes until they see the uh, the, the the circuit breaker. So whoopsie. Uh oh. As as yeah, because of that now, um, I guess the the, the it's called the P six panel is on the right hand side under the old um, engineer panel. There, it's been uh, uh, kind of redesigned, and now the the, the circuit breakers are um, receded into these little troughs that keep that from happening. Hopefully, so. Uh, but I tell you, even even to this point, even to this day, I always check that circuit breaker. And there's another circuit breaker that I always check, and this is because I used to be a, a, a sim instructor on the seven six. The landing gear, uh, the lock lever circuit breaker. Uh, 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 one thing we used to do all the time was, you know, uh, wait until the the crew was, you know, getting all ready uh, to go uh, with their procedures, and and the lock lever uh, circuit breaker is all the way at the end, the top row there. So you just go ahead and pop it. Easier than this. And, yeah, and when you go in up, when you go to put your landing gear up, uh, it won't come up. So uh, that's another one that you want. You always want to check. Damn, that one. instructors. Uh, so. yes. <laughs> they're, a, they're a fiendish breed. Yeah, well. Hey, Steph. How's the weather there? Uh, you're still with us. I know you just went to yep. check. There's uh, sirens going off. Yeah, so we, were, you know, I was mentioning the uh, line of weather that was coming through, and we were in the middle of the plane tails, and I got a tornado warning, not just the watch, so uh -oh. warning. And then there were tornado sirens. So I felt like probably I should go investigate that and make sure I was okay to continue sitting here and uh, doing the show with you all. You can see, um, if you're watching the video, that it's quite sunny looking out um, yeah. this window. So it seems like my house is on the very edge of that particular cell that is currently producing very severe weather and possible tornadoes. Um, so I went outside and I, I looked and the very edge, it's, it's so strange. If you look to the south, clear blue skies. You look to the north, dark horrible like very fast moving spinny looking clouds oh, that uh. don't look very it's actually very impressive um it, just to stand I, out there i've done a lot of metrology i'm not sure about spinny looking clouds i i'll have to <laughs> look that one out. <laughs> no? yeah, that's okay. a very technical term um, oh right okay. yeah, yeah. yeah so so special kakalaki term <laughs> bright blue skies nice warm kind of you know little gusty winds and then to the north not my wife complains see. of that all the time. That's scary spinning clouds. <laughs> you miss that <laughs> in meteorology. Oh, so I was hoping we, you were going to finish the show in your uh, understairs cupboard with your computer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and a flashlight pointed up. You know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now it's good. It's it's moved past here, but hopefully, hopefully yeah. everyone's okay. It definitely looks like a bad. Uh, hmm. Um. That just that one cell there. It's actually right just south of Charlotte now. It's moved past my area, so all clear here. Good Excellent. to go. Yeah, and actually, this whole line of rain that moved through. I don't think we're gonna get a drop at my house. Somehow we kind of split this little narrow gap in the uh, the whole line of storms that's moving through. Very nice. Crazy. Don't know how you do it. Luck. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, let's uh, keep. Going with some feedback. What do you think? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Uh, this one is from Ricardo. Some audio feedback. Uh, he sent this to Liz. Uh, Dear executive producer Liz, I'm sending my first audio feedback in the .wav file you will find in the attached Google link. 
He says, I'm sorry about the size. I'm just getting the hang of audacity. I didn't want to ruin the file by trying to compress it. Um, yeah, don't worry about your size. We're a big, one big family here. Um, anyway, um, so he says, thanks so much for your awesome work as executive producer and for helping one of the best communi- uh, communities in the potosphere thrive. Again, warm regards, Ricardo Pina. And let's play his audio feedback and see how he did. If I can find it. Here we go. Uh, hey, Captain Jeff and uh, APG crew. I hope everyone is doing well. This is Ricardo Pina uh, sending a voice message from Mexico. And uh, I have a question particularly for for Rick because he, he because he's the the resident 747 expert but of course uh, everyone's input is going to be interesting and welcome based on the, on on your specific experience with different aircraft types uh, I recently saw a video of a 747 that was supposedly breaking aerodynamically upon landing that is, uh, instead of lowering the nose right away, the pilot kept the nose up for a while after the mains touched down. And as far as I can see, the spoilers and uh, thrust reverses were, were deployed normally. Uh, but apparently he, he was braking uh, by, by keeping the nose high. Now, I've seen jet fighters do that all the time you know it's very common but i don't think i had ever seen uh, a big jet do that at, at least not in in normal operations so my question for for rick is this uh is that a normal procedure in the 747 uh I, if it is a standard procedure is that prescribed and uh, by the manufacturer and uh, does it have to be certified uh, by the manufacturer um, if it is not recommended by the manufacturer can an operator or an airline develop such a procedure and uh, can you think of any combination of landing weight and runway length and braking action perhaps density altitude that that would necessitate such a procedure uh, do you think it's really effective um if it is effective why isn't it done more often and um if it is not effective and it is not a standard procedure would a pilot get in trouble for doing that would one of the automated safety systems raise any red flags uh, if if a pilot does that? Well, again, uh, specific question for a 747, but I would love to hear what Captain Nick or Captain Jeff have to say based on their experience with the uh, with Airbus family or perhaps even with the, with the Starlifter back in your military days, uh, Captain Jeff. Uh, anyway, thanks a lot for your comments and uh, keep up the great work. Uh, saludos desde Mexico. Cheers. Cheers. Um, so, too bad we don't have any 747 pilots or 
Anybody that knows anything about that airplane on our... Oh, wait a minute, we do. Rick, yeah. what's the deal here? Is this a standard thing, or was this guy hot-dogging, or what? Yeah, a little hot-dogging there. It's not standard at all. You know, and you, you land, you touch down, and then uh, you just irritate the airplane and, 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 and stop. Um, I don't really see a reason why it aerodynamics... And it, and it even says it's on the, it's on the, uh, it's on the flight crew training manual. It says that aerodynamic braking is not effective, and really the effective way of stopping is by derotating and getting the plane uh, stopped quickly. Uh, you run into another issue here if you don't derotate quickly enough. Uh, one is if you try to keep the nose off the ground, uh, you might run yourself into a tail strike situation, one. And then two, um, not so much in the 7.4 because you have, uh, you know, as, as, as Nick uh, uh, mentioned in his excellent um, uh, um, a story uh, last segment here uh the fact that you have four sets of uh of gear bogies uh but you still could run into a little bit of weather veining if the wind is strong enough so just you know just get the nose on the ground and um uh just uh get it stopped i don't see a reason why you know keeping it off the ground like that would would do any good and i i i think it's the same for for all commercial airliners there are some airplanes out there where uh, even though i mean jeff has flown this particular airplane the t38 um uh the uh brakes on that particular airplane uh, are not uh or so i've heard uh, very effective so aerodynamic braking is a procedure for them but not for airliners i mean for airplanes like the 747 you have what 16 sets of brakes back there so there, uh, no, no, no amount of aerodynamic braking is going to outdo what the actual braking system is designed to do. So just derotate and just stop normally. I was going to say the only airplane that I've ever flown that aero braking is effective is the T thirty eight. Everything else, every transport category aircraft that I've ever flown, says as your manual says, Rick, uh, it's not effective. But you know, lower the nose gently to the runway and then you get all the maximum of effect of uh, reverse and braking and that's the best way to stop an airplane i suspect that nick is going to tell us probably the only airplanes that he's flown that utilize aero braking are probably those fast jets yeah um you're quite right um i mean the danger for us in the 340 was it doesn't have a huge elevator uh, and if you've got the nose wheel up and anything below 100 knots, you're going to run out of elevator effectiveness. Exactly the right. airplane just crashes Man. down. Yeah, not and not only is it distressing for the passengers, uh, you know, if you get you're too slow, it'll uh, and you've got a bit of braking on to amplify that, that downward motion, you could <laughs> really severely damage the airplane. Um, yeah, we used to do it in the tornado a bit. Uh, but we had thrust reversers on that thing, which are much more effective than uh, aerodynamic braiding. It's, like you said, Rick, it's a bit of showboating, quite honestly. Yeah, <laughs> the F-15, I think, is one of the few airplanes I've seen where it was a regular occurrence. And th that thing's like a couple of tennis courts big. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when they lift the nose up and just flat plate it down the runway, I guess it could create a fair amount of drag, which is the only retardation you'll get from it. But, uh, nah, uh, there's no practical or sensible reason for doing it in an airliner. You know, one of his questions regarded, um, like, the systems that kind of keep track of Various parameters on the jet, uh, you know, the Foqua system, we call it on our fleets. Um, does Is there something like that that would kind of snitch on you if you did something like that, Rick? 
Well, there's there's um, um, parameters uh, on uh, your your rate of derotation, uh-huh. um, and that is that is a parameter there that is that's certainly certainly recorded, and mm-hmm. it has to be within within uh, within limits. Uh, and uh, the seven sixty seven is known for having um, uh, you know fuselage issues uh, when you derotate too hard, and as Nick said. Uh, and you know, intricate part of the of a proper derotation maneuver is having enough um, uh, you know airflow across the uh, elevators to provide you the, um, uh, the 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 control you need to properly derotate the aircraft at the right rate, and uh, you know, um, and avoid a a, a slap down situation which, which could compromise the the uh, fuselage structurally. So uh, no, just touch down normally. You know, get the nose down on the ground and stop normally. That's what about Concord? Is that uh, uh, the only transport category? I guess you would call it that. Uh, no, actually, so, so Concord, they never. No, I don't think they ever no. did. So they would no, they would derotate, and in fact, as soon as they derotated, the put the nose on the ground, they would go to stick forward. Okay. So um, yeah, hmm. Concord didn't have. Well, obviously, I never flew Concord. I mean, just what, from what I've seen, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the uh, PM, I believe it was, would. Uh, uh, as soon as the captain, de- whoever, whoever, whoever was 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 doing the landing, as soon as that pilot the PF derotated the aircraft, the PM well, would grab the yoke and actually go stick forward, okay. and uh, and uh, and keep it uh, glued to the runway from, you know, for directional purpose, uh, directional uh, control, uh, you know, purposes. I imagine so. Mm-hmm. And Neil was asking about the space shuttle and aerobraking. I don't know. Uh, no, I don't think they do that either. Uh, they need to uh, what they. The thing with the thing with the, from what I've read and 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 the studying that I've done and all that stuff, they uh, they have a very very specific, um, obviously, um, uh, speed schedule when it comes down to touchdown, and a very um, specific speed window for the nose to come down at the proper rate. Uh, because uh, the, the space shuttle don't have engines, so you, you, I mean, you're relying sp- entirely on inertia, on on, on whatever energy this, the, the 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 craft has, and then as soon as the uh, as soon as the, the the nose touches down, based on wind and uh, there's a scale I remember having it somewhere, where if the wind is above a certain um, uh, speed, they do what's called a delayed shoot deploy, versus a standard shoot deploy. Uh, to control uh, the very de- the very uh, rate of uh, derotation, mm-hmm. so uh, you just get the nose on the ground to stop it. All makes sense to me. Uh. One last thing, though, um, before we move on, um, Hillel just wanted to give a shout out to Ricardo. I don't know if he, I guess he knows him. Um, ah. He says he's been listening to you forever, and even gave me a USB drive full of episodes back in 2010 before I started listening. So, oh, nice. Huh. There you go. How about oh. that? So Ricardo indirectly is responsible for. Hillel in the shower for the Slack promo. Seems that way. Okay. Uh, well, now we know who to blame. Uh, Thanks a lot, Ricardo. No, you did a great job with your audio. Um, also, he did um, put a link to the YouTube video that he was referencing regarding the 747 landing. So we'll have that in the show notes for you. Okay. Um, Greg from Sydney. Uh, in Australia, not Nova Scotia. 
here. I didn't know there was a glad Sydney he, Nova glad Scotia. Glad you cleared that up because I had no idea was there was a like, Sydney Nova what? Scotia. What? <laughs> I know. Me too. It's like, I sorry, never sorry, heard sorry, of Canada Sydney and Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia, okay. I did not realize. Yeah. Just listening to uh, episode 461 and watch the Vidaro, uh, Vidaro uh, video. How do we say that? Vidaro? I don't know. Uh, when you mentioned sharing the link, when I came back to continue episode 461, both you and Nick mentioned how fast the Dash 8 seemed. Apparently, it is. A few years ago, now wait a minute before we move on here. I think that Nick had um, was using um, a little bit of uh, sarcasm uh, because... I picked up on it right away because there was there are parts of this video where they actually speed it up. So it's like on a base to final turn, and instead of doing it in real time, they they speed it up quite a bit. And so I it wasn't is that what you were talking about, Nick? When you were talking <laughs> exactly about exactly right. Okay, yeah, that's what they, I thought too. Lad, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, sarcasm is uh, is a feature of the show. <laughs> and, yes. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, we're not clever enough to be witty. <laughs> no, we're not that clever. A few years ago, uh, when I was the secretary of a flying club here in Sydney, Australia, I was chatting to a board member who was in aircraft sales, but also had a son flying Dash 8s. He told me that when the Dash 8 was first designed and built, the engines were only 650 shaft horsepower turbines. Turbines. Over the years, it has grown, and the current Q400 variants now have 2,000 shaft horsepower turbines. This would make them very sporty indeed. Yeah, but I don't think quite sporty enough to do what they did in that video. (laughs) They were going warp speed in the video. Um, Anyway, he also indicated that they were able to uh, exceed VNE in straight and level flight on a single engine from ground level to 18,000 feet. Wow, it's a lot of power. Anyway, keep churning out those episodes, Tailwinds and Talons, Douglas. And this is Greg Laversha from Sydney, Nova Scotia. No, wait, no, hang on. I'm I'm getting confused again. Uh, Sydney, Australia. I, I yeah, I've been to the beaches in Sydney, Nova Scotia, and they're they're not really that good. <laughs> not as good as the ones you, in Sydney. N- not as good as no. uh, Manly Beach and Bondi. No. Bondi and Coogee and all that. Oh man, oh. there you go. Just, By the way, V and E for those who don't know, velocity never exceeds. Oh, but I was going to say right on there. the dash eight, what is V and E? Things get yes, about one eighty. After after V and E, things start to bend. <laughs> I'm just kidding. What did I'm you say? Hate hey, mail. I just said <laughs> next is V and E, and I said two. A two. Oh, wow, <laughs> that's even worse than what I said. I said one eighty. <laughs> I was going to see if I could find it real quick. I don't, I don't know. Someone will tell us eventually. Um, yeah. Hey, mm-hmm. I know. I know V and E on the big dash eight the seven four. That's a point nine two mock. Well, that's what. Well, that's M M M M M E. Right. M M E. Emony, I thought that was like some kind of a sea thing, sea creature. Hmm. Anyway. An enemy, yes. An enemy? Oh, you're not an enemy to me, Nick. You're my friend. An enemy? <laughs> Thank you. Um, let's do some more audio feedback. What do you think? Uh, from Muhammad. And uh, he's over there in Iraq. <laughs> Want to make sure yes, I get that sorry, right. Sorry, I said around last show. Sorry, I almost Muhammad. said the same thing. Wait a minute. No, that's not right. Okay, here we go. Here's Mohammed. Hello, APG. This is me, Mohammed from Iraq. 
thank you very much for your compliments and previous and uh, previous uh, episodes i appreciate that thank you on this feedback i'd like uh, to share with you a story happened with me also during my training session on the ground position there were three aircraft on my frequency and suddenly uh, the higher ops called me they told me we have we have to close the airport and uh, tell our aircraft to expect delay until further advice due to special training uh, special training or something like that so i called my aircraft i informed them expect delay until further advice due to special training and uh, i closed the airport for sure by following procedures the three aircraft two of them were iraqi airways the third one it was an iraqi private company after several minutes uh, the operations or the higher ops correction called me and they said ops back normal you can open the airport and back uh, the surfaces to the airport i said okay so i gave startup and pushback clearances to the three uh, aircrafts on my uh, frequency i put the two iraqi airways first then i put the iraqi private company at last it wasn't intentional i i'm very honest what uh, it wasn't intentional i it's happened like that and the and it looks like the captain of iraqi airways felt that i did that intentionally because the iraqi airways are the national transporter in my country so he talked in my frequency and he said hey ground you are the best ground controller you deserve a vip id to enter back that international airport and you have to tell that to your manager or your general manager you are the only guy who deserves the vip id to enter back that international airport i said thank you captain i am trainee air traffic controller my instructor besides me i can't make friendly talk with you because guys i was thinking he's joking with me and i said the instructor is here and i appreciate what you said he said no 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 i'm not joking with you uh you are not a trainee or a controller and uh, you did very well uh, and say hi to your general manager because i am a captain and at the same time i am the chairman of iraqi civilian aviation authority uh said thank you very much captain appreciate then my instructor uh, began to talk to him it was surprised moment i can say (laughs) everybody uh, were shocked when they, they heard there is a, it was the chairman of Iraqi civilian uh, authority ICAA and my instructor he, he began to smile he smiled to me and he put his hand on my shoulder and said mm, lucky you you have connections Mohammed I said okay uh, lucky me <laughs> before it was uh, breakfast on taxiway and now connections 
it was a funny moment and uh, i'd like to share it with you thank you apg and i wish you well and absolutely uh, i love you so much <laughs> thank you bye bye we love you muhammad and love hearing these stories and wow talking about connections you must be an amazing air traffic controller yeah i can't wait to see how quickly he'll be promoted now yeah before uh, you know yeah. it he's going to be the head of aviation in iraq they should put well, you the deputy track. head. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Either, head. either that, or they should put you the Orlando Executive Tower. Just, uh, <laughs> yes, you there. <laughs> that would be great because yeah, then we that, could go down and good. visit him. That's right. right. There you go. That's right. Meet Breakfast up on the taxiway too. <laughs> <laughs> A picnic on the taxiway APG meetup at Orlando Executive. I like it. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Hi, boys and girls of the APG team. It's Pip here. I've got a question, um, I guess mostly for Nick and Jeff. Now, it was announced today in the press that the company I work for, SafeJets, we'll call them, have acquired purchase options to buy the new um, in-development supersonic business jet made by uh, Arion or Arion. I'm not sure how we're pronouncing that. Now, I think there's still a long way to go with this, and it, it remains to be seen whether this... Uh, technology will really be competitive um, as I understand it and I don't fully um, you know get the concepts here but in order for the sonic boom produced by the aircraft to not reach the ground which is crucial uh, then its speed it will have to fly at around mark 1.1 or so so really only just supersonic um, so compared to, you know, a lot of long-range business jets like the Gulfstreams and Globals, which can already cruise around at a high-ish mark, sort of mark 0.9. So mark 1 or just above, in reality, is not that much quicker. You know, probably talking 10, maybe 20 knots difference. Uh, so I think it remains to be seen, uh, if we're talking about margins like that, if this will be competitive compared to, a you know, a, an established biz jet. Uh, but anyway... The question I have is regarding uh, characteristics or aerodynamics and handling when you do go supersonic. Uh, is there any real difference? Are there any special skills that you need to take on board and develop of a supersonic flight? Now, it's my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding that actually not a lot happens once you pass through the, the uh, sonic threshold and go supersonic. Uh, I think that the transition is pretty benign and the handling once you're in that flight regime is is not an awful lot different, but maybe I'm totally wrong on that. So, Nick, uh, I think you've got pretty extensive experience flying supersonic stuff around. Uh, Jeff, I th I'm pretty sure that you've done some as well when you were an instructor. Um, now, I would imagine that this jet, if and when it gets developed, is going to have some pretty fancy flight augmentation software and computers to keep us idiot uh, pilots out of trouble. And I suspect that we're not going to be doing any aerobatics or anything like that. We're just going to be, uh, you know, straight and level. But uh, yeah, I, I wonder what's, what's required for supersonic flight. Any special training required? You know, could anyone do this? Any old run-of-the-mill average idiot pilot like me? Or do you have to be a, a sky god like Nick? Um, appreciate the answers. Over to you. Thanks. Well, of course, 
only the very best, most skilled pilots in the world can possibly even think about flying supersonic. No, that's uh, not of true. course I, I have to agree with you there, Jeff. <laughs> you, hit, you hit the nail the right on the head there. Pilots, <laughs> yeah. for sure. Although I think Fly Sky, great electrical work, not so much. Uh, yeah, that's true. A sky God is understating it a little bit, but uh, we'll let that one slip by. Yeah, uh, uh, I'm sure, Jeff. I'm sure you uh, taught your students uh, the transonic effects no. when you. I didn't because I was an instructor on the T-37, the Tweet, which um, didn't go much faster than 250 knots. So, um, (laughs) so, but only one time in my life have gone supersonic, and that was one of the flights that we did as a student in the T-38. So, um, so I don't have a lot of experience with it. I can answer some of Pip's questions, however. We have an expert who has probably flown hours at supersonic speed, and so I'm well, going to let Nick answer this. I don't know. If they, you do use the gas up fairly quickly uh, in most military jets when you're going supersonic, so uh, not ours. But um, we used to do it in the Hawk trainer, which is really a subsonic aircraft, but you could force it supersonic, and you went through the classic uh, effects that – um, you know, guys in Second World War um, experience. So, uh, as the shock wave started to form on the um, uh, on the thickest part of the wing, uh, the airflow behind the shock wave, um, you know, we're talking a normal shock wave, an up, upright one, would break away. And so, you get a lot of um, turbulence. You get a lot of buffeting. And we used to say it's like driving a car over cobblestones over a rough road. Uh, and then uh, as the shock waves started moving further back, they didn't do so evenly. Uh, so you get wing drops in the Hawk quite marked. So, you you know, a wing would swing down about 45 degrees very quickly. You'd have to correct on that. Uh, and then uh, you would get a little bit of porpoising um, as the shock waves moved back and forward. And then eventually when you got to Mach 1, everything was smooth out again. And then as you decelerated, you'd feel those symptoms in reverse, but usually a lot quicker since uh, your deceleration uh, it could be quite quick. But, and of course, an aircraft designed to go supersonic, unlike the Hawk, which was subsonic. Um, the whole point of the supersonic design is you don't have to undergo any of those uh, dramas. Um, so... The transition between supersonic and, um, sorry, subsonic and supersonic um, was seamless, absolutely. You didn't really even know it had happened if you hadn't looked at uh, your Mac meter. Um, once you were truly supersonic, uh, the effects were vaguely noticeable. Uh, and the main thing is that center pressure has moved. So you you've now got a center of pressure that's moved to the aft, moved backwards, uh, and your control effectivenessly has reduced. So in a phantom at the speeds we're talking, if you put the stick hard back, you could over-G the airplane 6, 7, 8G without any problem at all. Once you're supersonic, you could put the stick in your guts, and the most you ever got was about 4G. Um, because uh, even with an all-moving tailplane, it was less effective. Um, And the other strange thing was, uh, whereas most times you turned, you'd feel the aircraft buffet, um, supersonic, the airflow sticks to the uh, wing like 
glue. There's no breakaway whatsoever. Uh, so you don't get any buffet, even in your hardest turn. You know, you can hard turn. You can do a 4G 70-degree angular bank turn, uh, and, and you wouldn't feel a thing. It would be like gliding across ice. So that was really quite you know, nice about it. It was an incredibly smooth region of flight. Um, the trim change on a civilian airliner, well, you're going to have to cope with that because it'll create a lot of drag you don't want. So that Concorde used to pump fuel around um, and used to put it in the tail to compensate for that. So you didn't have to continually deflect the flight controls uh, when you were supersonic. Um, fighter aircraft, you didn't bother with that because you weren't really too concerned about it. Um, uh, and really handling-wise, that's it. The only, the main concern is you're now eating up the sky. At, well, Mach 1 was like 10 miles a minute. One, Mach 1.5, 15 miles a minute. If you got close to Mach 2, you'd be uh, you know, eating up the sky at 20 miles a minute. So uh, that you know means you really do have to think well ahead of the machine. So uh, you know, normal point eight cruising eight miles a minute, um, you you really got to think about possibly doubling the rate at which you're going to anticipate things happening, and everything takes a long time. And there are additional regulations about not dropping booms and slowing down within your certain distance from the coastline, all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, and really, honestly, uh, I, I remember chatting to or listening to the interview uh, of um, Mr. Davies, who certified, gave the British registration certification on the Concorde. And he talked about problems of uh, the engines failing when they were supersonic. And uh, there was a big concern that the, uh, the aircraft would, with an engine failure, an outboard engine failure, would yaw. And because of your control, loss of control effectiveness, directional stability is a big concern when you're supersonic because your fin is now no longer as effective as it used to be. And what's more, you've got a big shockwave attached to the nose, which can create a lot of yawing moment if the airplane isn't pointed directly into the airflow. So you lose an engine, the airplane starts to yaw, that shockwave on the nose can drag it round even further. And, you know, God forbid, the airplane can swap ends. Um, so I suspect in a civilian airliner, if they build it on the one, they will have very sophisticated yaw controls and they'll also have the ability to match engine pass. If you lose an engine on one side, perhaps they'll reduce thrust on the other side. Uh, it doesn't matter if you slow down. Christ, you've got... Heaps of speed, so <laughs> pulling both engines back until you're subsonic and uh, e easier to control, then uh, that will obviously be a, an easy option. But uh, we'll see what they come up with with designs. Uh, I don't think it'll be any harder than any other airplane, but of course it's a very attractive option to go fly something like that. So I expect the, the real problems will come in competing with your fellow pilots to see who gets the chance to uh, drill it around the sky. I think it'd be brilliant. Yeah. Although technically, I mean, you won't be supersonic till you're above 1.2. So you're still transonic from 0.8 to 1.2. So, uh, oh, wait a minute. So you're saying I never flew supersonic? So, <laughs> uh, north of 1.2, yeah, supersonic. I was you telling 
You try telling Chuck Yeager that. Yeah, exactly. I was 1.15. Exactly. The first man who went transonic. No, exactly. <laughs> maybe, maybe I got up to 1.2. Does it have the same ring to it? No, 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 no same ring to <laughs> you it. You definitely yeah. do. I'm sure you did. Uh, but, you know, the, no. uh, the, the, the uh, T-38 Talon was designed for flying supersonic. Not really fast supersonic, but sort of supersonic. <laughs> and just to kind of basically demonstrate what Nick just explained in detail about the fact that, you know, honestly, for me, it was like, really? Okay. That we're supersonic now. And yeah, look at your, look at your mock meter. Or, you know, oh, okay. Well, it was kind of a letdown actually. And yeah, then yeah. the, uh, you know, the, the controls, as Nick said, very sluggish, you know, that was kind of the point of the whole thing was just to show us what an airplane feels like flying at, in supersonic, um, at supersonic speeds. And it was like, okay, yeah, that was Really not that big of a deal. The other thing I'm wondering about with this Aero, um, uh, forgot what the name of the, uh, Arion, I guess, um, coming up with a supersonic business jet along with some other companies. Um, we already have, what, Cessna Citation or Latitude or whatever out there that's flying up at 0. 0.9596. The, the Citation 10. Mach. And yeah. it's... And and I think what, from what I've read, these uh, companies are coming up with supersonic business jets. They're only talking in like just barely supersonic, not Mach two or Mach three or something ridiculous. It's like just a little Is bit that over supersonic just, uh, overland flight. Because I know in order to keep the boom from you know making a big difference overland, they they're going to keep it down. T- but I think over the water, uh, maybe they there's nothing to the restrict them. So yeah, I think maybe. they can go considerably faster over ocean. But I was thinking to myself, it's not, you know, maybe the, the o- crossing the oceans, but it doesn't seem like it's that huge of a difference uh, in speed. And I'm wondering if it's going to, you know, be worth the extra cost of doing them. Well, but, perhaps not to you and me, but I'm sure yeah. um, Jeff Bezos would like to have a couple. Oh, yeah, true. We'll see. I hope that they're successful because I think it's, you know, supersonic flight um, is pretty cool. So, Oh, it is. And we've got the technology to do it. And so we can yeah. make all the supersonic fighters you want. <laughs> so right. I only want to make it a bit bigger. Yeah. So, Pip, bottom line, even somebody like you will be able to fly an airplane supersonic. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. not doesn't take extra special skills. So. Pit with his hair on fire. I can't yeah, wait to see go. it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it for today's show. Um, we've run out of time, and uh, we're going to move those uh, great pieces of feedback that are still waiting for us uh, to the to the next episode uh, notebook, and uh, look forward to covering your feedback on the next show. In the meantime, we're going to appoint you over toward our website, airlinepilotguy.com, where you can learn more about the uh, community and you can learn about the crew and uh, we have a library there more detailed information about the plain tales um, merchandise more information about the coffee fund and so much more so please check out airlinepilotguy.com also if you're wanting to send us feedback um, whether it be email or audio or whatever um, send it to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com that's probably the best way to do it and we're also on social media, or what I like to call the Sochmeads. Yeah, you can find us on social media slash Sochmeads. Good way to do that is to head over to twitter.com. We are at APG Crew. You can find our individual Twitter information pinned to the top of that page as well. 
If uh, Facebook is more your speed, facebook.com slash airline pilot guy, join the community there. And we also have an Instagram page. We are APG crew on the Instagram. And if you want a deeper dive, maybe check out Slack. And I think Hillel may have made his way. Oh, I, yes, I he did. Hey, hey, Hillel, Hillel, can you tell us about Slack? That's okay. I always love hearing that. Um, why don't you come over here and uh, make sure you dry off a little bit so you don't get me all soaking wet and uh, sit down here right in front of the microphone and tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel, and uh, we look forward to... Look, I mean, he's so uh, uh, multi... Oh, he's excited about the free soap. Um, he, I like free soap. <laughs> is he pinching your free. soap, Jeff? I think this he might be. Hey, say some for me. Gosh darn it. Yes, now, we've, now i got a whole bathroom Have full of wet towels. shampoo. Nothing but shampoo. Wet, wet towels, towels and uh, shampoo and nothing else. <laughs> Dang it. Anyway, uh, it looks like he was actually uh, texting at the same time. He's a multitasker for sure. Yeah. Anyway, we always uh, appreciate uh, your help uh, with Slack. Uh, well, and uh, yeah, it's for... a big job, and uh, looks after it very well. Yes, he does. And also a big shout out to our producer, director Yay! Liz in Ontario, Canada. Um, thank you very much, Liz, for all the work that you do. We missed you at the beginning of the show, and we are so relieved when we saw that you were back with us so uh, welcome back and uh, thanks again for everything you do and uh, with that we're going to go ahead and bid everybody adieu and say wishing you clear skies unlimited visibility and tailwinds take care and god bless cheers y'all we'll see you next time be good bye everybody yeah he's up in the sky it's the airline pilot Good day. I used to be such a good, good pilot. Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But 
But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly over 